clubhouse. We mean to make things over, we are tired of toil for naught. With but fair enough to live upon, and there in our forethought. We want to feel the sunshine, and we want to smell the flowers. We are sure that God has willed it, and we mean to have it ours. We're summoning our forces from the ship, your job and mill. Gators for work, gators for rest, gators for what we will. Gators for work, gators for rest, gators for what we will. Welcome to New Money Old Rules, the Gilded Age podcast. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. We're trying something new tonight. <laughs> Dancing around over here in my seat. I'm I feeling prom- it. I promised you last week that I would find the eight eight uh, the eight 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 song, and it's actually just called Eight Hours. Uh, and I did. Woo! You did. Tell everybody who you are and what we're doing. I'm Mike, and tonight we're discussing episode six of season two of the Gilded Age. Warning shots. Oof. It was written by Lord Julian Fellows, and it was directed by first time Gilded Age director. Crystal Robertson. We don't often have a new person coming in, especially so late in the season, but there we go. Welcome to the gang, Crystal. There were a couple of shots that you could tell were a little bit different, like when we were at the mill and we were doing that sweeping, long, landscapey shot. There are some different ones that, that I wonder how much that Crystal did choose these. Just a community note, if you want to continue the conversation and get some extra history notes, because Mike has done a ton of research, y'all, please join us on Facebook, the Gilded Age fan group, parentheses, HBO series. We've got lots of great commentary going on right now. Lots of people listening to the podcast and giving us some feedback and then also lots of commentary about the show itself. So come on over. We assume you've already watched this episode, so we're not going to go step by step. Mike's not going to read you what's going on exactly. We're just going to hit our highlights and tell you what we loved and what we were having some questions about. Except for when I do recap it, and then Caroline (laughs) sends me a message saying, stop it, you're recapping. Please stop recapping. (laughs) And then I go, damn it. All right, so where'd you get this 888 song clip? What is this business? I found it on Spotify. So 8 Hours uh, was a real, like, work song. The lyrics were by I.G. Blanchard, and the music was by Reverend Jesse Henry Jones. There's actually a whole album of uh, Reverend Jesse H. Jones music on Spotify, and I found this as one of the songs on it. And it's got a wide-sweeping swath of music from this time period, and this is, like, late in the record. Guys, when I tell you... I searched the internet for recorded <laughs> versions of this. I found the lyrics in several places. I found stories about the song in, in on a bunch of websites. This is definitely a known thing, but actual recorded versions of it. So the, the version that you have on Spotify is from the album that's called The Hand That Holds the Bread, Progress and Protest in the Gilded Age Songs from the Civil War to the Columbian Exposition. And the recording is by Cincinnati's University Singers. So if you, but I found it searching uh, via Jesse H. Jones, who was the Reverend who wrote the music for it. So if you are inclined, you can go listen to it. Anti-Monopoly War song, the song of the Red Man, the Chinese, the Chinese you know, no Irish need apply, Jim Fisk or he never went back on the poor, uh, father's a drunkard and mother is dead. Sounds like a wow. banger. That sounds like quite a song. All right. So there are some good songs. You guys go check it out over on Spotify if you want to listen to more of the 888 collection of songs 
songs that are over there. I have to jump into the timeline because I have some questions for you, Mike. We know that the Montgomery Solarium opening was not a real event, but we know that it was August 21st. We also know that Jane Addams arrives in New York on the RMS Servia in August 1883, which is like the day before the opening was like when the Oscar Wilde play, right, was actually performed. But In real timeline, yes. Right. And so, but then we haven't had the Brooklyn Bridge opening, which actually happens in May. So what do you think? Are we just like having to kind of be a little bit flexible about this timeline where it's just it's a little fluid here we're, we're sort of in the summertime they're definitely trying to get to october 22nd for the opening of the met the finale has to take place at the opening that, that just narratively makes sense and that's only an episode away we have episode seven and then episode eight is the finale which also last season we started in april and we went to october over the course of the season so yes i think narratively we just have to be flexible with the way they've laid these things out picking you know a fictional event to actually like anchor us to a date in the show is interesting they could have done the oscar wilde thing here which was really something that happened on august 20th but here we here we go if we end up covering the brooklyn bridge then we're just gonna have to roll with it that they're moving (laughs) it back from may 24th uh, to maybe september or whenever they're gonna say it is i appreciate a fact the fact enough that they're covering these historical items i think i'm i'm really convincing myself here i'm literally talking to myself into it as we're working through it okay i'm cool with it i understand that these events all happened during this time and it's okay with me if it's not exactly because we need certain things to happen for our characters so i'm okay with leaning into that we did learn from when we were talking about the duke arriving on the rms servia that the duke of buckingham in the show is fictional but that in fact in august of this year of 1883 jane adams does arrive does travel on the rms servia to new york so that actually as works out nicely marion is teaching her jane adams classes or beginning to teach them on the same day that dashiell decides to hold his dedication ceremony at the uh, at the botanical garden solarium which itself is fictional because new york's botanical gardens were established in 1891 but don't actually open to the public until 1900 there is no solarium at the botanical gardens there is a conservatory at the botanical gardens so there is no new york botanical gardens yet in 1883 and when it does eventually open it's in the bronx and i just can't see agnes going to the bronx Right. I don't see that so, either. I guess the Bronx of eighteen of the late 1800s is different than the Bronx now, but I, I, too far from where she is anyway. Hey, I saw here on our notes that you have something specific about speaking of old Agnes and the Van Ryan address of 12 East 61st Street. Tell me about that. Oh, I like that. When, when Jack got his mail towards the end of the episode, they zoomed in to show us that it was a letter from the United States Patent and Trademark Office with its own address. It was like District 7 Office, New York. It's addressed to Jack, Mr. Jack Trotter at 12 East 61st Street, no zip code, New York, New York, no zip code, zip codes, or which zip actually stands for zone improvement plan. It actually weren't introduced in this country until July 1st, 1963. All right. So are you want to start with the Russell House? Where do you want to start? Let's start with striking. Let's start with George and the pickle that he is in. My goodness, that was a lot that was going on. And boy, I feel like I learned a lot about Mr. Clay this this episode. Yeah, I feel like it was really starting really the last couple of episodes, maybe even going all the way back to early in the season when they have that meeting with Jay Gould. 
you remember? And that, that was where I oh, first yeah. noticed that Clay was actually using his real deep voice register. Yeah. He's only gotten more bloodlusty as the show has gone on. When they're going up to Newport two episodes ago, he's talking about how if you blink, you lose the war. If you give them into their demands, it'll lead to ruin and violence and death and the pestilence and the locusts and the rivers turning red and at the same time, as Clay has dug his heels in, I think we've seen George actually starting to soften. He even says, which prompts Clay to give his all of the bad things that'll happen. It's George saying, would it be so bad if we paid them more? And he says, yes, without hesitation. And this episode, why isn't there a school? I neither know nor care. Uh, okay. So that was a huge thing. I, I was having some flashbacks to, um, it's a wonderful life. Remember when he goes to the town that with the little homes that people had built, do you remember that portion when George Bailey is like going around and seeing the little, the little town, everybody has like those little tiny little box houses. That's what this town reminded me of. I, it really struck me to get an opportunity to see their families from things that I've read. Th this was actually like a very nice home that Henry was in that like most of the homes would be much smaller, much less furnished and just everything. Their kitchen table was was in the same room with a bedroom. There was a lot going on there to tell us about the life of the non-rich, you know, the, the working class people, which we haven't gotten that much of an opportunity to see. So I was glad we got to see that. And I really felt like we learned a ton about Clay's personality. But then really, how surprised were you at how compassionate George was? There's always been this weird personality split with George where he is robber baron George when he's in the office or dealing with money things or threatening Mr. Gilbert of the Met with calling the note in full if Bertha doesn't get her box but then there's the George that is telling his daughter I will defend you against your mother uh, you know to marry for love having sympathy for what is the big deal if we pay them some more or at least maybe not being so soft as that but at least starting to entertain the idea being sympathetic to the French chef when when or not French chef, you know, uh, when Bertha would have sacked him without hesitation. We've seen these these aspects of George where he actually does not want to be the bad guy, or at least doesn't want to be the bad guy unless he has to or unless it's demanded. Which comes down to this question, and this is the Clay versus George question. What is required in this situation? Well, let's listen to the Proud Men audio clip so we can actually set the table with George and Mr. Henderson. And then I add on a little bit of George's conversation with Mrs. Henderson at the end. I know you're a proud man, and I do not hold it against you. I've come quite a distance, too, and I'm proud of the company I've built. Like you... I'll fight for it. I am proud. I'm proud of my work and my family. And my job is to protect them. We need the union to do right by our families. But if it comes to violence, no one wins. And everyone suffers. But your workers are already suffering. They have no life. They work 10, 12, 14 hours a day, six days a week, for which they're paid barely enough to put food on the table. Your horses have better treatment by far. We offered a raise to your tradesmen. And they refused because we won't be divided, as you know. I cannot pay a different basic rate for common labor without disrupting steel production across the state, across all of America. And that's your last word? My last word on pay. On safety, even welfare, there may be more to talk about, but not on pay. Then there is nothing more to say. There is no point to this. The union funds will soon run dry, and I will starve you out. The men will do what they must to stop scabs from taking our jobs. 
Some of them will get hurt. Some may die. Doesn't that trouble you? The stakes are high for all of us. I hope it doesn't come to violence. But we're prepared if it does. I hope you find a way to settle things, sir. For all our sakes. I'm afraid I have not been able to persuade your husband. He only tries to do his best. I would claim the same. George even giving in here, now he's he's affirmatively saying, I can't move on pay. I offered a raise to your tradesmen, which your people rejected, but I'm willing to work on safety and welfare. That's huge. Yeah, I was disappointed that Henderson wasn't willing to talk about the safety and the working conditions and, and that type of thing. Like, I've, I really felt like maybe it's because it's on the heels of our T. Thomas and Booker T. conversation about progress and moving forward and how, you know, so oftentimes it, it does come in smaller chunks. I'm sad that Henderson is like an all or nothing kind of guy. I wish that negotiations actually meant that, you know, it didn't mean just do everything we say or else we're not going to do anything at all. It's like, come on, there has to be some sort of give and take conversation here. I did think it was important for George to see Henderson's family to understand that this whole whole town, yeah, the whole town itself was being affected by everything. Having the, the crying baby, the sound be as George is like walking through the little the townspeople i mean the whole thing seemed incredibly sad and like we need to do something better for these people george like this is too much when he asked about the school i was heartened like if we don't see george building a school in that town i will be shocked like there has to be something to actually service that line because otherwise it's like why would george say that or have that moment i i feel like we need him to actually do something to improve conditions uh, these company towns i mean really existed on, honestly through probably the 50s 60s you know the 1950s 1960s you you could probably still find these company towns throughout america because that is the the cities and the towns and the smaller hamlets where the steel f- factories were the car manufacturing factories in the 20th century henderson says everyone here works at the mill so everyone that's why everyone's gathered because it, Im- it involves all of them and george thinks he's being bold when he comes back and says i employ but that's because i employ everyone in the town this is my town yeah it's your town like it or not this is your extended responsibility you should know if there's a school you should know why those kids aren't in school i agree with you henderson does a disservice to not pick the thread of welfare and safety because part of the 888 is quality of life. And it feels to me a skilled negotiator should be able to slip the quality of life discussion into safety and welfare. Now, the presumption is if you're going to reduce our hours to an eight hour work week, then you're probably going to screw with our pay and pay us less. And obviously they don't want that. They want to make at least what they're making now or more and work less for it, which even saying out loud, you see why George would scoff at that and and his responsibilities to himself and to his family and to his company. And, you know, there is a market, there's market influences here also, which he brings up often as an argument that falls on deaf ears with Henderson. Henderson doesn't care about up turning the market forces if he starts paying a a very different rate than the Goulds and Carnegie's and Vanderbilt's and anyone else in these occupations, in these business lines. But that is a real concern for a business, though. So there's talking across purposes here. For me, the biggest takeaway here is now there's a schism between George and Clay. Listen to this real quick, because I'm really curious what your prediction is here following this. 
Tell them to stand down. What? Tell them. Don't weaken now! Tell them! Captain, stand down the troops! Company, really cover! Front rank, stand! <laughs> This is what Clay prophesized when he said, if you blink, the war is already lost. He said it to him on the train going to Newport. Now George has blinked. So now George has two flanks he has to defend. He's got the workers who he didn't have them mowed down and killed, but he has to still deal with them. And now he has Clay potentially working against him. Messy. What is Clay's walking off disgusted and what have you done accusation? That's his boss. He's he's saying, what have you done? Yeah, but at the same time, I mean, he is his lawyer. He has to look at after the best interest of not just George and not just the Russell family, but of, admit this business. You know, he has a responsibility. Now, the concept of just shooting all the workers <laughs> is a pretty extreme, insane measure. They could have arrested them they could have you know put them into trucks and hauled them away somewhere but like shooting them all it reminded me of like when people like call the police for like the smallest things and you're like do you understand like when you call in the army <laughs> you are you're basically asking for someone to get shot in this situation and you're i think that george like it all snowballed so fast for him like you could see his eyes were just like this was not my intention. I was not intending to stand on this side and watch people be shot. You know, when he was actually up in the office and he was like, when they heard the gunshots, I mean, he was legitimately shocked and freaked out. Like, do you have guns? Like, we're using guns now? Like, what is going on? I, I think that this whole thing got out of control and really got out of George's hands. And Clay seems like one of those guys who, I don't know if George is going to reel him in or just kind of work around him? I mean, do you think that Clay keeps his job after putting George in this situation? My bigger worry is that Clay works around George. Remember Jason Alexander in Pretty Woman? Yeah, completely. Stucky. He being Clay and Richard Gere being George. Richard Gere, when he begins his relationship with Julia Roberts, he begins slacking off their takeover empire that they have. He goes around his boss gets in and confronts Julia Roberts, calls her a whore, how much money do I need for you to sleep with me? Really working around him because he thinks he's doing it in the best of his boss's interest in order to refocus him on what's important. My worry here is that Clay is going to do something the same. He's the one who's in contact with the governor. He's the one who's in contact with the, the militia, the National Guard, for all intents and purposes, who is here ready to mow down workers to allow the scabs to come in not george but isn't that insane think about that clay doesn't care these are not humans to him they no, are i get assets. it but killing people i and i'm not saying this isn't accurate and this isn't exactly what happened i'm saying shoot man i think like the wild west is like crazy times and stuff like that but whoo this is what's going on like in the big cities we're just like <laughs> so i had drawn comparisons to the haymarket square riot because of the relationship of johan most who the show name dropped a couple episodes to go he's an anarchist who was in america riling up unions and and mills steel workers there is an even maybe better comparison for people to look into and look at the homestead steel strike of 1892 because that took place in pittsburgh or you know really on the river across 
just across from Pittsburgh. It was a Carnegie Steel plant. Henry Clay Frick, who is the chief executive of the steel plant, he went to battle against the steelworkers from the Amalgamated Association of Iron and Steelworkers who were on strike for pay. There was a lockout. Frick sent Pinkerton detectives up on barges. So the Pinkertons who were mentioned in here and mentioned in the last time Clay was talking about the, the strike preparations in the Homestead Steel Strike 1892, Frick sends Pinkerton detectives on barges up the river in order to protect strike-breaking replacement workers that he planned to hire, scabs. Pinkerton detectives have become known for infiltrating unions and breaking strikes nationwide, including another Carnegie plant just a few years earlier. When word spread of their Pinkerton's approach, thousands of striking workers and their families rushed to the river to keep them from coming ashore. The Pinkertons then became pinned down in a bloody gunfight with the strikers and were forced to surrender. Eventually, Pennsylvania state militia was sent in to suppress the strike, and the union was crushed. I'm not saying it's not accurate. I'm just saying it's pretty horrific that an army would come and shoot your workers over an argument over pay. It just kind of like reminds us all that this is a time when things were still being figured out. Like as much as we have like civility and rules and manners and whatnot. You're a good observer of humans. And so I'm curious what your think, what your take is on this question of pride, because the clip we played starts off with George saying, you're a proud man and I'm, and I'm a proud man too. Is this an example of men not blinking or, or working together to reach an amicable solution based out of mostly pride? I, I think pride is a huge issue here because for Henderson, I mean, if he doesn't deliver, he's going to be run out. You know, I mean, let's not be confused. There'll be another Henderson behind him to take over that job. He has to deliver something to these guys. The George part, he's being realistic in terms of the entire industry across all of America will be witnessing and paying attention to the choices he makes for worker conditions and salary. It does go beyond pride. I mean, it, it does go beyond that because, I mean, there's, there's real life consequences for both of these men. But certainly that first step of just saying like, we can't all get exactly what we want here. So we're going to have to sit down. We're going to have to compromise. We're going to have to take this in steps. You know, somehow we're going to have to do this. It's pride that's stopping them from even beginning the process. After that, there's real life consequences to everything else. But pride is definitely stopping them from just talking. So when he's walking out of the house, he, he sees the, the town gathered and he George says to him, yet you send your son to work at this mill where you say I treat the horses better than the humans. And Henderson clarifies, you know, this is a fight for all of our sons to have something better. And it's really George seeing and making eye contact with Henderson's son in the crowd as the as the captain is ready, is counting down, ready to open fire. I think it's the eye contact with the sun that ultimately has him stand down, right? That feels like the thing that tips it over. Imagine yourself as Henderson, the moment when he act when he shuffled his son behind him, mm. like when they actually started to raise the guns, that actually struck my heart pretty hard. It was such a parent move. You know, it was it was so natural. It was so organic. You know, of course you would grab your kid. Of course you would put them behind you. It just sent home this really important message that like we are families out here. We're all families and, and I am the dad and I'm putting my kids behind behind me in order to take the bullet. For George, he understands that. That's like, that's speaking George's language, you know? He is willing to take a bullet for his kids. I think Henderson's actions actually affected him more than his words. 
the end of that clip, the what have you done that Clay says before he stalks off disgusted, George's response to it is, how could I? These men have families. And obviously, we, we already talked about how Clay, that doesn't even compute to him. So? I mean, they, it's the, I neither know nor care about whether they have a school. This He doesn't care about that the families. That was a wicked line, right? I mean, that was very cutting. I mean, that's one of those ones where you want to put that in your back pocket, you know, and be like, I'm going to pull that out in a meeting because that's going to let everybody know exactly where I stand. Clay was very, very clear on his position. And And to be honest, if we were only looking at George's point of view and what he did in this, I'm going to use negotiations with big fat air quotes around it because no one was negotiating here. What this all showed me, though, was that George did weaken their position. I mean, like it or not, I don't want anyone to have been shot. At the same time, what is his next move? If you're wondering why uh, on the way up to Newport, they decide to to show that scene two episodes ago between George and Clay, which lasts all of uh, like 90 seconds. It's for Clay to say who if you blink first, the war is lost. That's there. So you remember it when he says, what have you done? Because George, yeah, don't get twisted. George undeniably blinks first here. And listen to that crowd cheer in that clip that I played. They know it. How do you respond to that? You know what I mean? Like when, when George is trying to show compassion, he's, he's absolutely showing mercy and trying to be like, please, please Henderson, like, let's work this out. And then to to stand down and then have the other side cheer bah, because, you know, George is like trying to be the good guy in a lot of ways here. He's struggling with, you know, being tied to the industry and all the standards that are going on there and how what his actions are, are going to affect all these other big wigs that do not want to have to negotiate with their with their staff at all. So, ah, like this is so complicated. And that cheering, oh, Henderson, I want to be like, listen, guys, <laughs> I know you're happy and I know you're glad. But at the same time, you did not persuade him. He's just showing a massive amount of mercy. He doesn't feel differently, you know, about the actual issue. Yeah, these scab workers are still literally outside the gateway and come in. Yes, so. yes. So this is a mess. And I we're mean, not done with this either. I think clearly, oof. clearly we've now introduced maybe a third faction with with the clay variable. And what what does he do? That's what I'm saying. I think George now has two flanks that he has to fight on. But this is clearly not done. I had two questions left on this before we moved on. Given Clay's reaction, it made me think, how would Bertha had responded to George in this? If George, if Bertha is standing next to George there and he calls it off and he blinks, what does Bertha say? I don't think that Bertha would have allowed it to get to the point of anyone standing there with a gun. I think that she would have made different moves along the way. My big issue with that whole scene is that you do not bring a gun unless you are willing and able to pull the trigger. They were, though. Everyone except for George was. And George was until he was confronted with it. George says to him, I hope it doesn't come to violence, but we're prepared for it if we do. He meant fistfights. He was not expecting guns. I guess that's true. 
he was shocked in the office. When he heard the gunfire, he was shocked. But how can he be, though? Even on the... This is what I'm saying. Like, it got out of control for him. Even on the train, Clay is saying the National Guard and the governor are guaranteeing they will be able to get our scabs into the factories. And George stops them and says there's no guarantees in war. George is using the word war. Of course it involves guns. What do you think the National Guard, the militia, is going to do? They're going to have sticks? They're going to they're gonna duke it out they're, no you can do you can do plenty of intimidation and moving people along without it's naive of george okay but still i mean plenty could have been done that wasn't kneeling on one knee to shoot directly into a man's chest like 10 feet away from you but here's the deal i think clay set that all up i don't think george realized what he was walking out to i don't think he when he saw them kneel down like it was the freaking civil war mm. Uh uh-uh. uh, he didn't expect any of that. So you're saying George brought guns? No, George didn't bring guns. Clay brought guns. He never, ever intended it to be like this. I think he thought what we would all think if we brought in the National Guard here or in New York. Your first thought was not that they were going to kneel down and take a shot at all the people in the crowd. That's not what we would think. We would think that somehow they would do crowd control through their own management of people, not mowing everybody down. I actually don't agree with that at all. So if the governor called in the National Guard tomorrow, you would expect the National Guard to kneel down on one knee and mow down a crowd of people. That's your expectations. My expectation in 1883 is, yeah, because they don't have they don't have tear gas that they can disperse into a crowd or rubber bullets they can fire. Prisoners of war and stuff have existed forever. I think it's very different for George slamming his fist in his office saying, this may come to violence, but we're ready. I think it's very different when George is in the train car talking with Clay and looking at papers. I think it's very different for George sitting in Henderson's house talking about we're prepared if this gets violent until you see it yourself. I don't think Clay was hiding at any point that they were going to have guns ready to use them. Every single time, and I think this is the third maybe meeting we've had about the strike planning, maybe fourth. I was very clear weapons were going to be brought by the guard to enforce the guarantee that the governor was making on behalf of the militia. I think it just didn't compute in George's head until he heard that warning shot, until he got on the platform. This is the problem. George heard the words, but didn't process the words. Clay was promising blood. He was promising violence this entire time. How did George think that was going to happen? That they were going to talk sweetly? The militia was going to talk sweetly to them? No. I'm just basing it on George's actions. And he's the only one I really care about. He's the one who is who is the linchpin in this entire thing. Not Clay and not the, not the freaking National Guard. Not anybody else. George. George did not expect the National Guard to act like that. He looked like he was in horror the entire time he was down there. And he definitely was shocked when he heard gunshots when he was up in the office. So I think that he meant war metaphorically. I don't think he meant war like everyone. <laughs> I have... don't think Clay did. I think Clay. Oh, meant I agree with literally. you, but I agree with you. But George didn't. There's no way that George meant stand up there and shoot all these men in the chest. I, I, I just don't think that that was ever 
a thought. Oh, no, I agree with you. I'm just saying, though, I think that was George not asking enough questions or willingly not paying attention to an aspect that I think was made pretty clear to him what the situation was going to be. I don't think we're actually in opposition. I, I think we're saying the same things. I, I think we're saying he had no idea what what was going to happen. And, and what I'm saying about don't bring a gun unless you're willing to shoot it. All of these things are right. This is all correct. He shouldn't have have done that because then it made him look so weak when he wasn't willing to shoot the guns. So don't bring the guns if you're not willing to shoot. I don't know either. And I think it's interesting because now he has these two flanks at the strike, but then he he potentially opens himself up to some issues because of his handling of Mr. Gilbert and the Met. Let, let's transition George strike planning to George interfering in the opera wars. Mrs. Russell tells me that Mr. and Mrs. Joshua Winterton have abandoned the Academy and come to you. They have. I don't really know why, but it is quite a coup for us. Just so. And I gather Mrs. Winterton has requested the very box that was earmarked for my wife. Mrs. Russell has very graciously agreed to step aside. Now that is what cannot happen. I'm sorry, is the train moving? On the opening night, Mrs. Russell will preside from the central box in the first tier. Oh, but I've already A memory said. test for you. Some time ago, work stopped on the Opera House because you ran out of money. When and why did it start again? Because you signed a check, but Mrs. Russell was not to be told. And now you have a similar conundrum. Mrs. Russell will have her box back, but neither she nor Mrs. Winterton needs to be aware of this before the opening night. But the Wintertons are difficult. What if I can't arrange it? Then I will demand the debt is repaid at once and in full. The whole debt? For which you yourself have signed. I'm afraid I must get back to my work. Good day, Mr. Gilbert. There's a saying in Yellowstone, uh, if they tell you they're going to take you to the train station, that it's code that you're about to be killed and then pushed into a ravine. And I feel like this was a metaphorical taking Mr. Gilbert on a train station ride. I, he just looks like he's going to poop himself. It was an amazing flex to leave him on the train as the train was leaving. I thought that was so funny. And I was like, oh, my God, this is not the same situation like we would have where you just go to the next station and like catch another train or like get a cab back or an Uber. Like this man is going to be stranded. <laughs> I was like, wow, that was a wicked flex. Th this entire thing with, m with Mr. Gilbert was well played. This is the George that we all know and love, where he's like, he knows exactly what to do, exactly what to say to get what he wants out of this guy. And it is going to be delicious when Bertha gets her box because she's got to. There's no way Mr. Gilbert's not going to do this. I agree with you. But given the weakness that George has now shown in Pittsburgh, it makes me wonder if George's flex here won't come back to bite him in the ass a little bit, whether it is Mr. Gilbert really can't take the box away from the Wintertons because of the sheer number of people that they have brought to the Met and that maybe now will leave the Met if she then tells them, no, no, in fact, we're not going to go to the Met. Bertha having already given up her box in order to get what she wants, her larger goal, will Mr. Gilbert actually take it away from the Wintertons and or will... George's secret, which we learn in this clip, not only did he pay the debt, which we all guessed, but it came with the specific note of, and Mrs. Russell was not to be told about it. I just feels, I feel like George is, this is going to bite George in the ass. And I don't know if it's going to get Bertha what she wants. I think weakness is contagious. 
And I think the weakness in Pittsburgh may show cracks in other things because the money he is spending on the Met is directly related to the money that he is currently not making in Pittsburgh. And now he's going to be making less money because the strike is going to continue and or he's going to have to give up more concessions, which then will reduce his ability to flex money all over the place for things that Bertha needs at the Met. This situation in particular, though, I think that it's pretty tied up. I mean, he had Mr. Gilbert sign a personal note. Yes, that's that true. he would call due. That's not that this is very different. I mean, this is he's got one individual man over a barrel and he does have him over a barrel. I don't know how how could he possibly not do what George says? He's going to owe all that money personally himself. He He's not going to do that to himself. You're 100% right. If he doesn't have to reveal it to the night of, then then you're right, because social graces will, in the same way Enid couldn't jump up and spill the soup in the Duke's lap herself and just had a chew on her tongue, she's not going to make a scene in front of the Duke and all of other high society about not having the box. I think George will win that in that case. That, that That's a real linchpin point. You're right that if anybody knows in advance it is absolute disaster. It only works if Gilbert can keep it quiet and keep himself under control and actually execute this in the way that George said. I don't know if he's capable of doing that. I don't know if Ward is going to get wind of this. I, I don't know what's going to happen that could possibly mess things up, but it's got potential. <laughs> uh, let's switch to Bertha. Let's listen to Frenemy's clip. It's from the Duke of Buckingham. What does he want? He confirms that he's coming to New York City for the opera opening night. And that's good, is it? Don't be such a child. Of course it's good. It's wonderful. I will have an English duke as the guest of honor in my box on the opening night, and I very much doubt Mrs. Astor can say the same. In fact, I'm going to send a note to Mr. McAllister to tempt him to join our party and abandon hers. I don't understand. Are you and Mrs. Astor friends or rivals? The two are not exclusive. Bertha goes at Gladys here for no reason. I, I think it's a very valid question, the are you friends or rivals? And it, it, that's a good thing. I mean, maybe not as a good thing. Obviously, it's a good thing. But Bertha's so snippy with her. I think it was warranted. <laughs> Gladys is being so obtuse. We had several moments with Gladys that I'm sure we're going to talk about a lot more. But she had a lot of moments of being like, I had no idea this was what life was oh, like. For sure. and there yeah. was a lot of that kind of thing happening. So I thought that that Bertha was actually being pretty calm to just say, like, quit thinking like a child. What's your what's your deal? Like, you don't know that that a Duke sitting with us is a big deal. Like, where are you from? Like another planet? But you have talked about this, I think, very well. And I think this is a great example of it. There's no tutelage going on here. Apparently, but she can't even pick it up on her own. That's like the part where I'm like, at this point, you don't get it. Even Larry was like, what's your deal? You don't understand what's going on at this point? Bertha's doing her no favors by she sees this. Uh, so, I mean, she sees that her daughter seems to be completely inept to this entire aspect of life. Yet we don't see any tutelage on it. Yes, obviously, it's a good thing for the Duke to be going there, which maybe maybe is a demonstration more of Gladys wasn't wowed by the Duke in any sort of way, nor has any burning desire to see him again. I think that was actually my initial takeaway was her reaction was more like the Duke, whatever, like I, I still would have rather have sat with my younger crowd friends than than him at the dinner, which is one issue. Why isn't Bertha taking her aside and be like, yeah, it is because you're going to be betrothed to him. Or I think this is more of like culminating. She just kind of snips 
at Gladys tells her, you would make choices if you were left to your own devices to dress yourself. That would be wrong. But doesn't tell her why. I mean, she tells her things that would look girlish when you need to look elegant. But these are skills. These are skills that she is just saying you need to know or do, but is not actually stopping and teaching her or telling her either. She's not being a mentor towards her daughter, which is something that I would feel Gladys would benefit from. And Bertha has a vested interest in doing. It's been enough time. I mean, it's it's been six additional episodes past when she had her coming out. I honestly think the conversation she would be having with Carrie Astor and that, I mean, she's been talking about going to all these other balls and all these dinners and all this kind of stuff. Just pick up on some context clues. I mean, you say the word Duke and you're unaware of what that is. Like, I, I'm not sure what's going on with Gladys. I, I don't know if she's being willfully ignorant and just not picking up any details here or not understanding anything. She doesn't need to think that she's being betrothed to a Duke. She can just think that it's very fancy that her mother got a Duke to come to the opera. That's all she has to think. It doesn't have to be about her at all. But she's that out of it that she doesn't even know that he would be a big deal to her mom. Like she was like, is her. that good? They definitely, I mean, they definitely show her as out of it. I mean, there's the conversation and we could just, I mean, we could tackle the conversation really quickly in the garden where she's talking with her brother because a guy has come up to her that Larry inter- intervenes with and chases the man off. I think his name was Grease, Adam Grease, maybe. And he ha- he lays out for her, you're a debutante and an heiress. Duh. People are going to be flocking, you know, to see you. And she finally admits that she didn't understand that becoming a debutante would mean open season on her what you don't understand that but at the same time clearly bertha has never sat down and talked to her about that and i feel like that is a failing on bertha though because she spends all of her time talking to the rules to she tells george the rules that george you know seems like he's picking up but we never see her have that same kind of conversation with her daughter which strikes me as odd given how important to her Gladys finding a suitor and and coming out in society. I mean, that was that was a major plot line of season one, and it's a big aspect of Bertha's aspiration to be the queen of high society is her daughter, uh, and well, for the suitable matches for both of her children, but in particular her daughter. I blamed Bertha at the beginning, prior to her actually coming out, because she did seem so lost. But at this point, nah, it's been months and months since she came out, like. Nah, she gets how it works. She's just, I don't know why she's being willfully, willfully like this. But I mean, not to even understand that he's an important guest for his, for her mom. That doesn't make any sense to me. Like, I, I really think she's just, I don't know what her deal is. I, I don't know if she's that checked out or she thinks her mom's stuff is silly or what. Oh, well, I think But that. I she think, doesn't get it. I think she definitely thinks it's silly. And I think she didn't, I think she's not impressed by the Duke. I think she's extremely wealthy and the Duke really did. I think she forgot about the Duke literally the second that dinner was over. I don't think she's I, thought yeah, about the Duke since. Yeah, true. But his, but his status and title should be enough for her to say like, wow, that's great, mom. Good for you. You would think. You would think. I would think. I mean, I, I'm not sure what they're, how they're, why they're painting Gladys the way they are. I'm really glad, actually, that Larry and her had the conversation that they did, because to me, it was like, it was the most blunt and plain anyone has been to her. Right. And to me, it was like, but she wasn't like, what are you talking about? She was like, she was like, oh, yeah, duh. You know, and it was like, girl, what are you doing? It's the first time, though, that she has shown any kind of acknowledgement of the situation, though. You know, it's one of those things like you don't know what you don't know. 
but then when you do like like education and knowledge has to start with you admitting that you don't know something right and she admits here that she didn't understand what the game was so now putting that together with her conversation with larry maybe she does start to pick up on it more or at least be more wary in the world and more aware of what is happening to her maybe next time someone was like you should go sit with this 30 year older than you guy who you know who's very wealthy and has titles she would think i'm being fixed up with this guy whereas right now she's just like i want to go sit with my friends you know there's a disconnect there where you have to stop being a child and start becoming uh you know a young lady or you know a young woman in the same way larry had to be like we're gonna get married and we're gonna have great me miss susan i love you and now he's like i'm a wounded bird walking through the world mary and i will come pick flowers with you there is a there is a an education and, and a maturation that the russell children both desperately need to go through that maybe we're going to start to see them actually both embrace. I think Larry has already started. Maybe we're going to see Gladys uh, start too. I really like that dress she was wearing. I thought that was a great improvement. I actually really, really liked it. <laughs> it was pretty. And I actually liked her hat too. We have to give props to Caroline for calling it. The episode begins just like you said it, that Enid was not just going to go away, which was my hopeful wish. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in fact, the episode begins with her using her influence to get the center first tier box at the Met otherwise known as my box which is what Bertha mm. says to her, which is interesting because remember when they do the tour of the Met, Mrs. Winterton asks her, so you're going to take the center box on the first tier. She's like, it hasn't been settled yet. Well, no, obviously she, in fact, very much has decided that that box is, in fact, my box. It would be, have been inappropriate and unladylike to say that in front of everyone at the Met, though. Right. But I was just, I was just giving you- Winterton's always rude. You pick the next play. And I guess it was, I guess it was her only play, but she could have also just, you know, admitted final defeat but nope she she's nah. <laughs> not old that you need she's she's pretty wicked i still I, she probably still has more up her sleeve she may pivot during the during the actual finale and and do something more than we expect this is the episode if you are a larian shipper a larry and marion shipper i feel like this is really the episode that's gonna put you on it that there's something here not only the way he he stares glares i would dare say and then walks away when he witnesses dashiell's proposal at the end of the episode but even further towards the end of the episode they have that very sweet conversation where she doesn't even remember she's engaged because they're they're reeling with the reverend's news and yeah. he, has, he has to remind her he says well please let me be a help to you and she says that i'll remember that i feel like this was this was a first significant step in something more than just friendly banter on 61st street which is what most of their conversations have been this felt more pointed especially coming off of his walking away pointedly turning on his heel and walking away at the solarium dedication yeah i definitely think that this episode brought them closer together i think larry could see more of what marion was like dealing with which was this was the first time he was more privy to what was going on and i mean he certainly i mean everybody saw her reaction to that proposal <laughs> i mean i i mean just saying something like uh if you really want me to i mean i yeah 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 so everyone except for agnes was like huh <laughs> it felt hinky so i hope that larry and marion get together i think the two of them are way better together than marion and dashel dashel oof did dashel burn some bridges with me in this episode 
It starts very early in this episode. Let's listen to Agnes. She's receiving her letter. And I'm calling this clip Agnes Learning because I think this is the first time Agnes, especially dealing with Marion, takes a reasonable approach at making her point versus just a snarky barb and you live here rent-free kind of comment. I know you think Dashiell very suitable. You must give me some credit, Marion. I do not think he is suitable because he is well-born and rich, but in addition to those useful qualities, he is also intelligent and very nice. He's even handsome. What more could a girl ask for? I only mean that you should consider it. Montada said something similar. Hmm, really? As a rule, realism is not her strong suit. When is Dashiell's party? The afternoon of the 21st. What's the matter? That's the afternoon I said I would teach Jane Addams' class. Oh, you cannot be serious. You wouldn't miss it to teach a bunch of indigents? How will painting help them anyway? What are they to learn next? Gilding? Lace making? How to dive for pearls? I'm teaching them to read and write. But why not teach them the following day? They'll still be poor and needy on the 22nd, I promise you. What does... I mean, I know how it ends is not great, but am I wrong? Isn't this isn't this the most reasonable pitch she's ever made to Marion about anything ever? Pointing out that, yes, he is rich and wealthy and has status, but also he's kind and seems to like you and he is not unattractive. Very suitable. And the fact that Ada even agrees, which Marion, you know, is forced to admit. I think that Dashiell has been the most reasonable choice of anyone that has come past Marion's path so far. The conversation, though, that they have with Francis and then all the manipulating that goes on of Marion in order to get her there for the actual proposal. To me, I was like, Dashiell is not great. <laughs> like he is really trying to just trap her. He enlisted the help of so many people. When she gets pulled out of her classroom and told like she she needs to head out for the party, I was like how uncomfortable would that be to have somebody basically call your work? And create this situation for you. Like, I know on one hand, there's, there are romantics out there who will say, oh, my God, what I wouldn't do for a man to call my work and arrange for me to get to leave to go to this party and also to have all of my friends come and have this big surprise. It all sounds really good. But guys, they don't have a relationship. There's no actual like love between them in that way. There is goodwill. There is family stuff where they help each other and they've and they've done little things for each other but there's not like a relationship they're not like actively courting we saw so much go on with the rev and ada and that was like the fastest courtship ever but we saw them go places and do things there hasn't been enough with dashiell i mean people can point to newport okay cool and i know they did go to the play together this all too little for me you know like that there wasn't actually a relationship here they haven't been without francis once since newport she's just been a baby when they went honestly, to the play they went to the play together where he set her up to go to the daughter mother t yes that that play <laughs> yeah but they yeah. were alone they right, were alone true. no francis okay, that wasn't was the there last time, hey so, yeah. i don't want any of our listeners to point out that it was not the first time so I, I'm, I'm going to fix it but here's the thing 
still like it was always just like angling for her and Mm -hmm. and like finessing the situation manipulating her doing stuff to get her in the right place at the right time none of it was actually him falling in love with her or her falling in love with him it was all just sort of this this bigger situation with francis and the family and all this kind of stuff I really, really dislike it when they do stuff like put you in front of everybody and mm-hmm. <laughs> ask you. This is very Logan Huntsburgery to me. Oh, very and good it call. never turns out good. It's always uncomfortable. And I actually liked Logan too, but no, that proposal <laughs> did not work at all. Um, no. I think the, the genius of the narrative of this storyline in this episode is that it starts here with Agnes getting this letter from Dashiell, which, I mean, she says, Marion asks very reasonably, then why didn't he write to me? And she says, well, because I'm invited too, but clearly he really wants to see you. No, I, I'm sure if we actually got to see that letter and maybe this even come out, I, I feel very good about this theory. The proposal was definitely mentioned in that letter to Agnes because we know he's already written to Agnes once to say he wants to court Marion and you know advocate on my behalf he says to Agnes so of course he tells her in the letter that the proposal about the proposal I, I'm sure of it. I'm very yeah, I'm sure pretty of it. sure. I'm pretty sure almost everybody knew because um, there were people he said that were just Marion's friends who were there. Well, most of them, I think. So he says, when you yeah. think about that, I mean, hello. I mean, what would she think? So the genius of the episode for me was that Agnes starts with her most reasonable defense of a suitor for Marion to date. Really, to any, a suitor for anyone. Even think back to when Maud Beaton came on the scene for Oscar just a few episodes ago. Her first reaction was, does she have money? This is Agnes using her most reasonable self. And so then the episode, though, starts there and spends the rest of the episode showing us why Dashiell, in fact, not maybe the best match, maybe a horrible match for someone like Marion. And what a glimpse into her life would be when they have this conversation. Our family sponsored the new solarium. I'm so sorry to have to miss it. What? Don't say that. Why? I'm taking an evening class to teach the basic skills needed to find work. Reading, writing, you know, the sort of thing. This is for poor people. Yes, and that's the date. Couldn't you change it? Please. It won't be the same without you there. I'm afraid I can't be. The school asked me to take the lesson, and I said yes. But you don't have to do what they tell you. It's not as if you're a real teacher. I wish you would reconsider. I don't think the poor people would mind. My eyes are so big right now. My eyes are so big right now. Everything he said, everything Francis said, I was dying. I've been waiting for days to ask you, as a teacher, if someone said, but you're not a real teacher, you don't actually have to do what the school says, how would you feel about that? Would that go over well with you, Caroline? I think it's sick. I I think it, like everybody does everything they can to be belittle what Marion does for her with her time <laughs> like, to her face. It's to her ugly, face. They ugly about, business. They have the decency to talk about her behind her back. They belittle yeah. her and what she does to her face. And I know people will say, okay, no, it's really Agnes and and Dashiell who really say like rude words, but nobody's really like backing her per se. And and yes, yes. 
Mrs. Bauer made our lunch. I, I feel like we have to, because we have really great people listening over on our Facebook page. I'm very excited that you guys are listening to all the details. So I'm trying to be very careful for you. So if you're listening, know that I'm being very careful. Yes, there were times when Dashiell has been a good guy. There has been times when things have been okay. But overall, I really think that this was like so dismissive of Marion. It was so like, it let me know, like he isn't even looking at her really as a person who has these interests and the, and this obvious like job path that she's interested in, in pursuing. How would you marry somebody who would talk to you like that and say like, you're not a real thing, fill in the blank of anything. You're not a real blank. Really anything you're saying is going to feel mean. It tells you everything you need to know about what your marriage to this man is going to be like. Boom. We've we've talked a couple times about this show where a single sentence oftentimes may sum up an entire thing and everything else that gets added is just either clarification or for filling in the world building. This is one of those situations. Him saying to her face, come to my garden party because you're not a real teacher anyway, tells you everything about what marriage to him is going to be like. And also, have none of these people ever taken classes? Do we think that classes can just be moved to the next day? That's not how anything works. It's a date. It, why can't you just move the solarium dedication to the 22nd Dashiell? Hmm? How come no one's the asking whole, that? The whole thing was so awkward. I mean, even even down to Francis, who I thought was like a pretty cute little good kid, when she's like, but the poor people, mommy. <laughs> I was like, right. Francis. What? I mean, <laughs> so this is the household that Marion would, would be moving into, would be a household where the kid talks like that even like and hey i know it's not 2023 it, this is 1883 I, I get it it's completely a different time nobody needs to be so like worried about political correctness back then as we are now but at the same time i think we can all agree saying things like you know the poor people can wait till tomorrow they'll still like, be poor what are you doing and <laughs> you know? let's not forget this entire conversation is happening under the giant gaze of his dead wife's portrait yeah and it's super i thought he was so weird too when she was like well that's nice to like remind you of her and he was like i don't need any reminding you're like I didn't even know how to talk. I honestly didn't even know how to take that. I didn't even know how to take that. Yeah, because it's like she's trying to make small talk. She's trying to be like cool with you. What I took it like was just one more moment of like, you don't get married at all. Like she's trying to be like compassionate and and caring with you and all this stuff. And you're just taking things like the wrong way. You know, it just they weren't clicking. That's that's what I was getting. Like they were on different pages. The next step in the manipulation is Miss Frost comes in when Marion is in fact teaching her Jane Addams class. Two great quotes uh, here is the one on the board is a Mark Twain quote. I don't know if anyone noticed it on the blackboard. It said, books are the liberated spirits of men. And then Marion herself says, reading will unlock your life if only you'll let it. And I think that's a wonderful quote. I think if you ask Dashiell, it said to him, reading will unlock your life if only you'll let it. He'll be like, why do you spend your time reading? You're just a woman or, you know, like, is that a book that you're teaching my daughter? Because that's what you're good for is teaching and teaching her things and babysitting her. But don't spend your time silly But Caroline Hart is like, what are you saying? What are you saying? Is any of this, is any of this off base? It's not off base. And tell me about what part do you say? Who I'm in love with this man. Right. Yeah, my, knees, mean, my knees are buckling. Yeah, stop it. no. I mean, I'm so sad that Dashiell is turning out to be this way. 
and that and that Francis is turning out to be this way. Like neither of them seem like they respect what she does or understand what she does or how off base do you have to be in order to try to plan a proposal and then have the person who is a teacher and really, really cares about this particular job, this task that she's been given. I mean, she's really taking it to heart that she was asked to do this. If you knew anything about her, you would know that this is the antithesis of what she would want on her proposal day. She would never want you to cancel her class or pull her out of her class in order to do that. Like, have more respect for, like, who she is as a person. Also, listen to that clip again that we just played. She explains the the class she's teaching, and he goes, this is the one for the poor people. Crass. But also, it demonstrates that he knows about the class. He knows that the class was coming up. Yeah. Why didn't he clear his schedule before, her schedule before? for well you know why <laughs> he doesn't care that's the thing and that's what's so sad but that's like, important when... to know though he does it's another example of he doesn't actually care this is on his terms that's why he traps her so that she has to has to accept or at least feign acceptance i mean we're gonna listen let's listen to the dedication and the proposal here because it's so cringy focus on marion's incessant giggling and nervous laughter because she does not know what to do with herself. I wish this was a visual aspect, a visual element to it because her face is just almost pure terror at not knowing how to do, but she really expresses it well with these giggles. Let's take a listen. Fate had plans for me too. I never thought I'd find someone else to love, to stand by my side. To care for my daughter as if she were her own. We are here to celebrate what my family has done for the botanical gardens, but my family is not yet complete. I realized that soon after I met Miss Brooke. Many of you here are friends of Miss Brooke and may have been puzzled by my invitation. The truth is, I have invited you to witness this. Marion Brooke, will you marry me? Bravo. She hasn't accepted him yet. She will. Is Aunt Agnes right? Will you? That breathing giggle when he says, "Is Aunt Agnes right? Will you?" <sighs> <sighs> she doesn't some good know acting. what to do with it. Some great acting. Some yeah, great. I mean, I really, you know, this was, I, I really think that Marion as a character has grown so much in the second season. A lot of the things she's saying is coming off in a different way. It's things that we're seeing happening just feel more, I don't know, realistic, I guess, on one hand. And we talked about this a whole bunch in terms of, um, you know, what, what's what been her role on the show. And I feel like second season, you know, she's definitely taken over more of this main character role where she's not just having to ask questions like she's actually giving advice now and she's she's you know more a part of the community more a part of what's going on in new york generally so suddenly she feels like she actually has some wisdom and some understanding i have no idea what i would possibly say or do in her position 
I mean, what would you do if they've gathered all your family and friends, stood you in front of everyone, told you what a wonderful, wonderful person you were, and how much that this person just wants to spend the rest of their life with you, and you don't really want to? What the heck do you do? You well, how exactly would you handle you, that? You have to handle it the way she did. You have to, you know, give an answer if you really want me to, which is, guys, not a yes. Oh, wow, that's uh, such a rough answer, right? If you really want me to. But, <laughs> but I mean, the fact that Agnes is already applauding before she says anything also reveals that Agnes knew all about this. And they're just steamrolling this. So, Marion, you have to go alone to get along. She has to say yes here. And then she can deal with it in the privacy Right. right. You have to get out of the situation. There's too many eyeballs. Francis is staring at you. I mean, Francis is the only reason she's even able to muster an answer. Which... It is. It's true. She looks at her eyes. I think she, she would have said something completely different had Francis not been there. But when Francis's little pleading eyes are like, oh, my God, like, please say yes. If Francis isn't sitting on that couch in the drawing room, she leaves when he says you're not a real teacher. She's only here at all because of Francis, which right or wrong. And regrettable or not, it's it's the truth. She's only here and only invested in these two as much as she is because of Francis. Yes, Dashiell is fine, but for all the reasons that Agnes laid out why Dashiell is a good suitor, none of that matters if you, in fact, don't have feelings for him if you're trying to marry for love, which... Marion has always been very clear. She wants to love the person that she marries. She is not willing to... The thing about Marion is I really feel like that the way that she's being treated by Dashiell, it, it didn't even really have to be like love. Like he's not even neutral with the way that he talks about her saying you're not a real teacher saying, you know, like basically you're going to raise Francis as your own. Like he's like commanding her to do these things and doing this in a way that like it sounds nice or or it seems like she should feel like swept off of her feet. But Man, I, I mean, all we were missing was a net, you know, to actually like put over her and drag her away. I, I was I was really horrified. I, I think that you're 100 percent right. The only thing to do is to be like, I, I think, to be honest with you, all I would have said was, what a surprise. What a surprise. I wasn't expecting this. I don't think I could have even said the part that she said of like, if this is what you want. I, I mean, I would be like just continuously saying, what a shock. Whoa, whoa, my goodness. Oh, wow. This is why we all need to practice fainting. <laughs> yes, fainting would be a good way to get out of this. Here's a pro-life tip, guys. I advised my son who is a teenager and he's in, entering high school or he's in high school now. He's going to have peer pressure situations and, you know, he's a good kid and I think he's going to want to make the right decision. But peer pressure is difficult. So I have advised him that if he's ever in a peer pressure situation, he has got to respond with, uh, I got to take a shit and then run away. No one is going to continue to pressure you if you say you have to go poop. Oh, God. <laughs> Marion needed a version of I've got to take a shit in this situation or oh faint. That way she's not on the hook to give any answer. And people can I just I think assume... ladies have to just faint. I, I will go with that. Maybe these days we could say we, 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 we got to hit the bathroom real quick and come back. But like, I'm, getting, I don't... I'm saying Ooh. I'm saying you need to find your metaphorical need to take a poop to get out of these pressure situations. And yeah, fainting is perfectly justified does. in this situation because the people who want to think upon it fondly would be like, oh, she was so, so overcome with love and emotion. She fainted. And then those that are in the know will be like, oh, my God, she literally passed. She literally stopped breathing in order to not have to give an answer to this guy. And a little bit. Can I just say Marion has friends? She's got Larry and Aurora. Yeah, I know, but he said like most of the people are Marion's friends. Aurora's her cousin. They're 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 
family. Aurora's everyone's friend. Friends. She shows up everywhere. Yeah. Friends. Where are your friends, Marion? I'm so curious. I would love to see her friends. I love when she's talking with Peggy. I, I think Marion is her best self when she's in friend mode. So I'd love to see her friends. I don't know that Marion and Gladys have actually spent any screen time together since the first episode of the first season. Oh, yeah. Of just meeting her, really. I think that was the last time her and Gladys had any one-on-one time. Now, plenty of time with Oscar talking about Gladys, but with Gladys I don't know. Are you bringing Gladys up because of like commiserating of being like women who are being like pushed into stuff or what, why, what is the Gladys connection? It's just a one. I was just thinking of people that were attending this event that weren't really her oh. friends, but it is a wonderful comparison that the two of them are just being a trap sprung for them. So the thesis that we started this with was this was a very masterful, manipulative trap set and sprung for Marion. Which is horrible and, and not the way any any courtship or marriage proposal or anything else should ever go. If you need one more piece of evidence, it is a visual piece of evidence. The Mon- Montgomery Solarium dedication plaque that they're standing in front of when he makes his one knee proposal. Mm-hmm. It is dedicated on August 21st, 1883, which we know. It references Dashiell's parents, but then it references Mr. and Mrs. Dashiell Montgomery. Is that a reference to his dead wife, Harriet, who has been dead for some time? Or was Dashiell just presuming his new wife, Marion, such that he had the plaque made up to read Mr. and Mrs. Dashiell Montgomery? I think it's the latter. I think it's the final spring in a trap. He's going to turn around and be like, look, Marion, you're already referenced here as Mrs. Dashiell Montgomery. Ay, ay, ay. My my poor eyebrows are like all knitted all up. What a mess. What a mess for Marion. And honestly, I mean, here's the saddest thing about it. If Dashiell had just played this entirely straight, asked her out on a date, whatever was the appropriate way to do it, whether they needed a chaperone or whatever, if they had to go on group things or whatever they had to do, but play this actually by the book and, and be a good person and learn about her and get a chance to actually fall in love with each other, that it was actually very plausible. They're, they're not like a bad match in theory, but it's the way that he just blazed past getting to know her much at all and then just making all of these wicked, assertive, uh, I would almost say aggressive moves that left her in a, in a position where she couldn't say no. I mean, that's not consent if you have no other choice. Right. I, the consent was there was no consent on display here. Even her going to even when she exercised free will to go teach her class, that was still taken out from underneath was, her. Yeah, it was Could like you stolen in the middle, from her. In the middle of the class, she goes, you have oh. to go to that party. Well, I'm yes. literally teaching. It's not like before where we're meeting in the lounge and I'm about to go teach a class. I'm literally I just taught them that books are going to unlock their life if they let them. Just very uncomfortable. I, I would feel so. Uh, and again, in. In a different context, you could have done the same exact things and it would be so romantic and so wonderful. And wow, he got all her friends together. And in a botanical garden, how beautiful and wonderful and special. But he didn't have a relationship with her in order to do this with. 
Let's say they actually did have a relationship. And and while he wasn't encouraging of her teaching, he didn't belittle it, you know, was still going ahead and, and, and setting up a dedication of a thing it does require a lot of advance notice. And maybe these plans have been in work for a while because they have been courting and it is a relationship. There's no universe of Dashiell that is actually encouraging of her, uh, of her teaching the poor people. It just seems it's too far out there a concept for him and Agnes. But he tolerates it. Let's say he tolerates it. Whatever. It's not a great match. She could have done better, but she feels the need to settle down and she listens to Agnes's words and he is suitable enough and yada yada. He sets the date for the 21st. There is an aspect of me here that was like, I appreciate if you go through and you plan a surprise party for your significant other or some loved one. And then because they have something that comes up that interferes with it, man, what a kick in the balls that would be. I, I agree. He was shocked. He was shocked, shocked, shocked. And he literally but here's the thing. forward. One conversation with her. This is a big part of what she's doing right now. She yes. would have been gleeful to talk about the class she was about to teach and exactly when it was and all the things had he had any amount of actual like in-depth conversation with her he would have known she had something going on it didn't come up it was always planned right and in the i mean in the timeline of the show she she announces that she's gonna be teaching these classes well before august 21st even in the sped up or jumping months at a time episode to episode but again i think i think if you listen to the hypothetical hoops that i just had to get around in order to give it plausible that he would be so upset at a date he arranged this thing which required a lot of work to do and get all of her friends there and there are balloons maybe and maybe some ice sculptures and there's a plaque with a date and it it references it all of that that had to be put into motion <laughs> if he put even half or a third of the amount of effort into actually getting to know her and have her have her care about him how unlikely it would be yes yeah i mean it's it's just it's so sad it's it's really sad you know we're going to talk about some really sad stuff women are doing their darndest to stop these nets from falling from the trees it seems and trapping them into being wives to men who don't deserve them that's what seems to be going on in what the gilded age wonderful segue caroline you're a master of it always <laughs> he kissed me what when in the barn we were frightened for our lives and hiding and Huddled together. But he's married. I know. Uh, of course you do. I'm sorry. It was wrong and foolish. But the truth is, he's a friend now. I can talk to him about anything. Even my son. He understands and he challenges me. He champions my work. You mean you're in love with him? I'm sorry? That's what it sounds like, and I don't oh, want you to be hurt. It's too late for that. The only thing we both know for certain is that I'm going to get hurt. Amen, Peggy. I mean, she's going to be like all of the women in the show from time to time, the one who's ultimately going to pay this price. You know it's not going to be T. Thomas Fortune. We got to talk about what the scuttlebutt is going on. People talking on Reddit, people talking on Facebook groups, whatnot, talking about, is it okay to make T. Thomas a real person, a historical figure who was married? Is it okay to have made him cheat on his wife in a fictional show? Is that okay? What do you think about that? Yes, it's historical fiction. 
it's okay to make somebody like cheat who like because I don't know the history. So I I'm being honest. I don't with know you. the like, history either. I have no idea. I, Maybe I, T. Thomas was super well known for having like a bunch of mistresses or something like this. I'm not sure. So I I'm asking you and kind of our audience like what what do you guys think about this? I mean, I think it's fine because I think they presented it in a way that makes a lot of sense. I know he had five children. I don't know that he also in addition to the five children he had. That's a thing that is true. I don't know if he in fact suffered a child who died very young. I don't know if one of those five children actually died very young. Or I mean, it would, it's very plausible given the time. For sure. In the way they set this show up, it makes sense why he kissed her. There's nothing in this episode where he's like pushing himself on her. He's acting, I think, if not for them kissing, I think he's very professional in this. Peggy seems to think that they need to distance themselves. Uh, you know, maybe you have someone else write this article or, you know, what? And he's like, no, it's good journalism. Like, we should be working on this together in the same way we worked on the Tuskegee, you know, article together. Now, maybe he has his ulterior motives. Maybe he's looking to explore this more. And maybe we're going to see that. Marion even says before Peggy says he kissed me, she says that must have pushed you guys so much closer together and brought you closer together. And that's when Peggy said, yeah, yeah, he kissed me. It's the uh, the adrenaline of the moment and the life in danger is a is a believable catalyst for people who are, are attracted to each other. And they've done the work to set the table. So is it historically true? I don't know. I mean, she Peggy is kind of like an Ida B. Wells character. And while Ida B. Wells and T. Thomas Fortune did, in fact, know each other in real life and their paths crossed each other, I, I have not found anything that said they had some kind of illicit affair or anything at all. But I, I don't know. But narrative it makes sense how this story has progressed and and rolled out and so i'm okay with it if it felt salacious or out of character i would have a problem with it i think given how they set it up it works for me and i'm fine with it does that make i don't know if that makes sense or if that is well no, thought i mean it all. makes sense i don't have an opinion on it per se as much as i want to just make our audience aware that like this is something that people are you know questioning and like is this okay now we have a lot of other real historical people we have mrs astor we've got a lot of other people we're talking about right now but it's like when you have them do something that is questionable that it becomes like hmm and so far mostly we've not had that i would be interested to hear what our audience seems to think about this and moving on to the part of what do we actually think about the aftermath of the kiss because in the last episode we said maybe the kiss wasn't the most important thing maybe it was how it affects them and what happens next like if she were to get fired that would be insane or are they actually going to begin an affair what's going to happen with that so what do you think about how this is starting to unfold peggy seems to be much more i don't want to say consumed by it but she see it seems to be much more on her front of her brain and affecting how she feels like her her role is and their role to together working at the globe needs to play out i mean she's the one who says maybe someone else should write this story and you should work with them on it because he volunteers will write it together he tells her no us right what would what are, what would people think and he says people think it's good journalism and this is a good story she seems satisfied then she does tell him go home to your family which he pushes back on but then she says i can close up the office but i gotta tell you i am not happy or very excited about Peggy being alone in this office at nighttime. I know. That was bad foreshadowing when he's like, are you sure you're okay to be alone? I was like, oh. You're about to publish <laughs> this very provocative story that is going to have backlash. That includes the incident that happened. This is a lot. Okay, I do have to ask you this. All right, if I came to you and I said, hey, Mike, so guess what? 
I went on this work trip and my boss and I totally kissed. And you know what? I think we're friends now. <laughs> Does that sound a little funny? I think she was conflating different aspects of their relationship. Okay, but saying. you get what I'm saying. No, yes. what she's saying is now we have some sort of intimacy between one another. But it sounded so odd. Like when I think about talking with my girlfriends, if I were to say, hey, girl, guess what? My boss totally kissed me. And now we're friends. <laughs> I feel like my friend would say, what are you talking about? Friends don't kiss at work. I so think, what are you talking about? I think it was just said out of order. I think the you point- You get what I mean of though, course. right? It you sounds know, no. so my, my ears, odd. My ears perked up at it too. But I, <laughs> I think the point was that he is a friend to her because of the- what they have shared and how she can talk to him and be open to him. And, and, and he champions her work and it doesn't suppress her ambitions. He's not going to say to her, you're just, you're not a real teacher. And then they had this shared experience, which would have drawn them even closer together. Friends, maybe even close friends, but then he also kissed me, which then maybe takes your friendship and pushes it into where Marion diagnoses it as her having caught a case of the love <laughs> of the feelings of she the caught feelings. feelings she's 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 tested positive <laughs> for feelings it's possible that you know it's one of those things where you say friends in different ways maybe like maybe there's a little bit of like a way that we're saying friend or something that i'm missing that back in 1883 you could have like like a friend and in some way that i'm just not picking up on in the same way so maybe i'm kind of like laughing like boy friend seems like, like a strange way you mean friend like f-r-e-n like we're friend like or like, does it mean like, well, I mean, I feel like I've had older women who have a man in their life who they might say, like, this is my friend, but they're sort of like this, like, mm -mm with it. This is my male friend, John, or whatever. Like, you get what they mean. They're we saying friend, but it's not friend. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So maybe it was a little more like that. I, Peggy seemed so upbeat and so there was no like shame or anything that was going on here. I know she said it was foolish. I know she acknowledged the fact that he was married. For the most part, as an episode as a whole, she was very upbeat and excited and had a lot going on where I kind of thought she might be more introspective about the kiss, a little more brooding about the kiss. Like there's a lot of other stories that you and I have either watched on TV or read in books or whatnot, where the girl especially would have walked away, been like, what does it mean? Why does he feel about me? What's the next step? What do we do? And like none of Don't that, you feel like that, 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 that. But that has to be coming, right? And there's going to be I'm a reckoning sure. in the globe where I'm she, with you because she kind of sets the tone for having that conversation when she he doesn't pick up or at least he doesn't take the bait on why wouldn't we work on it together and like why are you trying to send me home like but like she's already slaying the groundwork for where they're going to have the conversation where he's going to try and do something or say something that's going to force her to say something like we need to talk like oh, what are we doing which which brings me to my question of is there now a clock on how much longer peggy could be working at the globe even if nothing else happens for them just the fact that they shared this kiss and that she has to now go to work every day with this man that she maybe in fact loves according to marion and maybe according to her own giddiness and enthusiasm but that she can't do anything more with, but yet still has to work with him and maybe work closely with him writing articles. The Globe staff doesn't seem to be large based on the amount of people we see in there at any given time. So they're going to be thrown together time and time again. Does this automatically put a clock on how much longer she can work there? 
if she ever maybe wants to pursue a relationship with him or just for her own sanity of being near someone, smelling smelling them and touching them and being with them and talking to them and, and delving into the crises of their people day in and day out, but not being able to act on it. It feels like the worst kind of water torture, unrequited love situation she should be putting herself in. You know, one kiss almost always feels like it leads to another kiss. Heck yes, the door has been busted open. I feel like I feel like love like kicked the door in and right, now it's like she knows that she's setting herself up for hurt though so that that's why I'm asking does she realize that maybe hmm. she has to punch out of the globe to try and mitigate some of that hurt that she is assured is coming it depends I mean there's so many opportunities still happening at the globe that I don't think that I think Peggy is level-headed enough that she is not going to put that mess, any emotional mess with some man to come before her career. I think she will move on from the globe if it makes sense for her career. I do not want her to nor expect her to leave because she becomes like, you know, this like forlorn woman that's just like, oh, I love him. That would seem really out of place for me with her. So, I mean, she seems like she's a very sensible person 99% of the time. So that's what I'm expecting. And, and she could still get her, her heart hurt because the situation, you know, is unlikely to move forward here again, because he is a historical figure. I mean, they would have to take some pretty major license here. I mean, they could have just changed his name, you know, but they, they chose to keep him be his real name. Peggy seems to be talking a lot more about work than she is about having any type of actual relationship with him. Maybe she's trying to chalk this up into just like a crush kind of feeling like, well, I feel like I'm friends and now I have like a crush on him kind of thing. I don't think that she will feel like she has to leave unless his wife gets involved or something like that. I don't see Lord Fellows writing that. I don't see him writing something that's just like, I don't know, like her just just pining away for T. Thomas. Like that doesn't seem like Peggy's path. I, it gets so messy when you when you open up the door to romance in in the office first and then romance with your boss or your boss's romance with, with the subordinate romance with your boss who is married with X number of children at home. This is fraught with issues. I think realistically, she's already being affected by it. That whole conversation, the fact that she's volunteering, I I don't know that she would have willingly said to him before their trip to Tuskegee, go home to your family. You can leave me in this office at nighttime that as we're about to publish this story that will have backlash and maybe lead to violence against the office of the globe while I am here late at night by myself. <gasps> you know, I don't know that she's going to come out with any of that pre them kissing. So it is already affecting how she is operating at work, even if he is not acknowledging it. So how long can that go on for? God forbid she gets hurt at it. Hurt right. At I office. don't I don't think it could go on very long. I I feel like we're already seeing Peggy get like diverted from her original track a little bit by even talking about sort of having feelings with him and all this. So it's like, I really hope that she just keeps her eyes on the prize, which is her career. I, I really, really hope that she can just stay on the path. And, you know, I look forward to this story opening up more and seeing more about what can happen with these two. How can they stay like on the up and up? Is this kiss just like one and done? We forget about it. Can she just have these like, you know, like looking at him with like, um, you know, hearts in her eyes, but still being able to 
do her job and just move on and they do not pursue any type of relationship. I know a lot of people online on Twitter and other Facebook stuff where people are like really, really distraught about the idea of Peggy becoming like a mistress to him. Nobody wants to see that storyline. So that would be, I think, maybe the worst, the worst, the worst, the darkest universe timeline for Peggy's character is to make her the mistress on the show. I, I think it would really do a huge disservice to her. I mean, she so has this like promising career in front of her and she's so just bright and ready to take on the world. I just I do not want to see her go down a path where she's just fawning over this guy. Let's talk about let's move to her new assignment uh, via let's check in with her and the Scott parents where she catches up with them on her adventures in Alabama. Did anyone lay a hand on you? No, because they didn't find us. I wish you would talk to me about the South before you left. Mother tried to warn me. I'm not sure I fully believed her then, but I do now. Just grateful that God protected you. I wanted you to hear it from me because the article about our trip is coming out in the Globe. I, I thought you were there just to write about the school. We've covered that, but we had to set down what we'd seen as well. I don't want you doing any more stories that put you in harm's way. How could I know it would happen? I would have. It's typical for Alabama. A woman should not have a job that could get her killed. So you'd rather I just sat in your pharmacy and did nothing with my skills to help better the world in some way? That's not what I'm saying. We just want you to be safe. Well, you can't always keep your children safe. You know that. Oof. The frown I just made, I was like, ooh. Remember how I said a couple of episodes ago, I was like, I don't know if she can just always be bringing up the the, the baby having died as like every end of every conversation. Like, like, I don't know if there's going to be like some sort of time where it's like, Peggy, we're talking about your writing. Like, you got to go bring that up again. But there is something about not being able to always keep your kids safe, which is a hard pill for parents to swallow at some point. Maybe a little too much bravado for Peggy to have when it's daylight in her parents' home after the danger has escaped. I don't think she's having this bold, you can't always keep your kids safe in the barn when people are looking for her with torches. She's absolutely right. Parents have to learn at some point that they always they can't always keep their kids safe. And I'm happy she acknowledges that mom tried to warn her about the dangers of going down there. But there is a boldness to that statement. And yes, she is implying her dead child and she is playing that card you know, suggestively, if not explicitly saying it, but there's a boldness to it that, yeah, you can, you can act bold of like, like she's like this courageous warrior after what happened. I mean, there's a whole conversation that she has with Mary that we didn't discuss where she talks about how T. Thomas was being brave and it was him being brave that got them in trouble. We went through it and we got through it and nothing happened and they didn't find us. And so you can't always keep your kids safe. Sounds good after the fact. That's a very 2020 hindsight kind of thing. As a parent, that I'm, I'm very much coming from this from a parent point of view. That is 2020 hindsight bullcocky that you know Peggy was not feeling in the moment. She even says, she says right before she's getting kissed, she says, like, my mom tried to warn me and I didn't listen to her. Yeah, yeah, yeah yes, yeah. she did, Peggy. <laughs> Margaret, yes, she did. I'm assuming Peggy is short for Margaret and that she's not actually named Peggy. I don't know, because I had an Aunt Peggy and her name was Margaret, so I'm just assuming. But who knows? Maybe it is Peggy. Peggy's next adventure here, taking on the, the schools in the North, it's going to be very interesting how this story is going to affect her having this 
the story come out in the Globe about Tuskegee and everything going on there. I I'm very hopeful for her that she can actually impact what's going on. And I see that she has the potential for that. I think that getting her feet wet in Alabama and seeing what is what is possible really can can give her a lot of credit, I think, a lot of legitimacy in her commentary or her criticism or anything of what's going on with these schools potentially closing. I didn't know this was a situation. Did you learn much about this while while you were watching it? I learned so much about this. So I'm, I'm only <laughs> going to give, I'm only gonna give a little bit here and then there's going to be a lot more on Facebook that I'm going to post. I actually wrote up a little bit of a concise thing. I actually put it in one of the Gilded Age Reddit groups today because someone I saw someone talking about it. So Sarah Garnett, whose real name is Sarah Jane Smith, Tompkins Garnet. She actually was a very significant figure in New York education because she was the first African-American female principal of a school. Now, the school she was a principal of was in Manhattan in the neighborhood that we call now Chelsea. So she wasn't the principal of a school in Brooklyn, but the, the larger point still stands. She also, at the same time, did in fact own a seamstress shop in Brooklyn from 1883 until her death in 1911. The placard outside says seamstress and milliner established 1875. It was actually 1883, which is just a nice symmetry that she opened up the shop the same year that we're taking place here. In addition to all of that, she was also a groundbreaking suffragette. It's an interesting person to pick because through her suffragette work, she actually crosses paths later in her life with Alva Vanderbilt, who is a rough inspiration for Bertha's character. And she did, in fact, cross paths with Tom T. T. Thomas Fortune and Ida B. Wells. So T. Thomas Fortune, in particular, he actually played a vocal role in the closing of the Black schools and the eliminating of Black teachers, which is introduced in this episode. This can be a really great plotline for Peggy to dig into, as her mother uh, points out, challenges in the North that people didn't know were happening. That this was a real war at home kind of situation for Black families in Brooklyn and in Manhattan that people didn't know about when they talk about they need to rally the community and educate the community about what's going on there. And there's so much more at play here. Brooklyn desegregated its schools, passed the law in 1880, again, 1883, to begin desegregating and actually closing its black schools because they wanted to force black and white children to go to school together. The idea behind eliminating the schools and closing and closing them and firing the teachers was part forcing desegregation and part also there was a lot of gentrification beginning to happen in Brooklyn at this time and there were actually a lot of German immigrant families that were moving into the areas that had been predominantly black neighborhoods and so they didn't want their children going to what they perceived as inferior schools so they were also pushing from the other aspect of the legislation for these these black schools to be closed and shuttered which really left these children with nowhere to go. They they no longer had their schools and their teachers that they were learning from to go to, nor were they really wanted at the schools that the government and the legislation and the and the Brooklyn Board of Education were forcing them to go to. They were really in a hard like a, like a between a rock and a hard place. And T. Thomas Fortune, he comes out against the forced closing. His point of view was, and there's a little bit of a quote here, but the the basic idea was 
you are trying to correct a horrible wrong, but in doing so, you are also creating another horrible wrong by firing all these black teachers. There were 26 black teachers that were ultimately fired that were never rehired into the white schools because they were forced to close the black schools. By ending segregation of schools, good thing, you are creating the situation where black students are no longer going to get the education they had been getting from black teachers because you're shuttering those schools. It, it's an interesting dichotomy uh, that was going on here. And it was actually Seth Lowe in 1882, who was the mayor of Brooklyn. Remember, in 1883, Brooklyn and Manhattan are not the same place. They are separate cities. The Brooklyn mayor in 1882, Seth Lowe, appoints, and this is interesting for the show, a man named Philip A. White, uh, a black druggist, pharmacist, to the Brooklyn Board of Education board. And then they make Mr. White the leader of the committee to examine the closing of black schools. And it's Mr. White who doesn't like the term segregation, doesn't like forced segregation, and he's the one who actually forces through the bill for Brooklyn to begin desegregating its schools, to shutter, to specifically shutter the black schools, again, in order to force black children to go to white schools. That happened 17 years before New York State in 1900 actually passes the desegregation of schools law. It is a black pharmacist from Brooklyn who is the man who forces through that bill in 1883 in reality. We have a black pharmacist of prominent note here on the show. How right. wild would it be if Mr. Scott ends up being kind of on the opposite side of Peggy and T. Thomas Fortune in this story? Well, wouldn't that cause just extra mayhem in the Scott household now? Uh, I don't think it would be great. Yeah, so this, you know, promises to potentially be a very exciting story with Peggy and her mom, and I love seeing them together, and then introducing, you know, Sarah Garnett. Uh, you know, I hope that they stay with this storyline for a while and really dig into it. My only question is, and, and Dorothy brings up the point when she's introducing the concept is you know, the South isn't the only place that we have our own challenges here in the North, which we've heard Peggy say she made the point when they were in Alabama uh, at the dinner table with uh, Booker T. Washington and his wife about how there are challenges in the North, this idea of challenges in the North. And she was talking about her experiences about, you know, in order to get published, she'd have to make her characters white and, and things like that. But yet she's not aware th that these schools are closing and, and that this is going on and that you know, the black population is being marginalized in the North, in Brooklyn, in, in the area that should be progressive. If anyone in the community is aware that these are ha that these things are happening in the schools in her community that you would think she would at least know about, especially her, with her mom working in the school, right? We, we learned, you know, Dorothy plays piano in one of the schools, I guess, as a class. Uh, is, that, is that an unfair nitpick? Am I, am I being too looking into it? I don't think it's unfair. I think that it's, um, you know, it's sort of like a one of those things where we're trying to get our arms around our characters. And she's one of the ones that I would have absolutely agreed with you would be like up on every news story, would be very up on every current you know, event going on in the neighborhood and everything. But I, the only thing I'll say is like, maybe we'll just have to say she was out of pocket here for some indeterminate amount of time. We don't really know how long she was in Alabama. We don't really know how long this has been like coming to a head with the schools. Like maybe there was a lot of like murmuring for a while, but maybe while she was in Alabama, maybe that's when it sort of like accelerated the story. I feel like you and I are, are being very hesitant 
to make predictions on really any of these storylines and where we think they're going to go. And so I, and, and I feel like there's a lot of stuff we're just keeping up on our, our cork board of ideas and keeping eyes on. For me, anyway, it's more out of this show has really kind of defied the obvious takes that you would assume shows would take, I think, in a lot of ways. So I'm real hesitant to make guesses because, honestly, I feel like things are just in transition. And who knows? I mean, next week, episode seven of eight, you know, Peggy could be have moved on from this story already. And maybe she's doing a new one. And maybe they never, you know, talk about her and T. Thomas again. I, I just don't know. I can't even really predict reliably what I think might happen because I, I really don't know. I don't know how you feel about it. Well, because we have such a large cast and we do keep up with a lot of different storylines, maybe it is pretty realistic that if you really only touch on different characters every once in a while, of course, you know, their lives have moved on and we would have missed a lot of the smaller details of what they were doing or why they abandoned that project and moved on to the next project. I would say that for us, like having things like the alarm clock story actually stay very steady in the background is more unusual than Peggy's. Like you said, like it could be next week she could be on to another story like that's more feeling like commonplace with with the stories how how they're actually being unfolded to us so do viewers have a legitimate gripe then with the show to question why are we jumping around and we only get like snippets of her time in alabama yet we are fully informed on the ins and outs of patent law and jack's alarm <laughs> clock story like right does it seem a little uneven is that what you're right, saying right peggy is is built much higher than jack trotter in the story and in the cast why you know is it is it That's a fair because it is because it, it's a criticism I, I definitely see about the show is allocation of story time Okay. Uh, and, and who is getting how much and why are we getting so much of this, but not enough of this? I think Peggy in particular is a good character that doesn't maybe get the screen time that as important character as she seems to be should get. She is a strong enough character that if they had a spinoff that was really revolving just around her and her family and like her adventures, I would absolutely watch. I would want to. I mean, that would be a great weekly show of like, what's the story of the week? So you're right. I, I hadn't thought about how we were splitting the time, especially because we have wrestled a little bit with this season about who is this series actually about? Because we had started at the beginning thinking it was clearly Marion. And then we were like, no, it's Bertha. It's clearly Bertha. And as we're going, it's like, you know, some of these characters, just depending on how much time we spend, if you just took an individual episode, you might say like, well, this is clearly Peggy's story or this is clearly George's story or whatever. But it's like we I actually don't think we're settled on who we feel like we're 100 percent going to go all in with as like the main story. I mean, as we're discussing episode six here, so that's six hours into the season, we started off definitively saying this was going to be a, the the birth of season for sure. And it was going to be Opera Wars. I feel like it really hasn't been very much. I feel like it started off very heavily Opera Wars. And then now it's been about three and a half hours worth of not very much, just some middling moves forward. He pays a debt to keep building going. 
Or like finding the Duke. Enid brings friends over to leverage her out of her box. Like just like a, really a scene or two. Bertha is basically not in this episode at all. And this is a, mm-hmm. a 56 minute episode. Bertha has two scenes. She has the opening scene with Mrs. Winterton. And then she has the scene with Larry and Gladys. That's it. So how is this really the opera war season? It is. I think we would have to almost wait till the end of the season and go back and rewatch and like, you know, have our little pie chart going where we like color it in as each storyline gets more time. Because it is a little hard to tell at this second because there are individual episodes that are heavily weighted towards one character or another. But if we took it in totality, I wonder if we would see that it was a little more equitable. I certainly would hope and and I believe in in our conversation with Lord Fellows and Miss Warfield, I, I remember them explaining to us like they were bringing Sonia on with the intention of bringing more attention to, say, Peggy's storyline. Right. So the, I, I know there was some intention there of, of making sure it's even. And I believe they added Miss Dunbar, I believe is her last name. But she's like a historian who's been brought onto the show. I don't remember if she was in for the first season, but she was definitely involved in this season and specifically brought in to work on the Peggy T. Thomas Tuskegee storylines and other Black history storylines. So it's something they're committed to and i feel like they're telling an authentic story with it all the more reason that i i mean i like jack and i'm into patent law hell i mean let's <laughs> i love it but i i would it's a curiosity I about would gladly why. sacrifice all of those scenes to get more meat with peggy and her storyline and you're right a scott's spinoff set in brooklyn at oh, this man. time it would, so great. it would be gangbusters and to have and have uh uh denny benton and and audrey mcdonald and arthur they're so they're so wonderfully cast. I mean, all three of them are just so great and so great together. That would be such a strong show. I would enjoy it very much. And it's a, it's a whole part of history that again is kind of just breezed by. Like I we I don't think we really have a good handle on on what that looks like. We didn't even really discuss. We started off the Peggy section here talking, playing the parents clip and stuff, but we really didn't even get into the nuance of it with Arthur going from mad dad that you didn't even talk to me about. I would have told you about going to Alabama. And you know, she's like, mom tried to warn me. But then he shifts and he says, well, I'm glad you're telling their stories and these stories need to be told. And, and so he becomes very supportive, the most supportive he's ever been. And then he shifts back into, I don't want you to do anything that's going to get you hurt. Like he really just kind of vacillates all over the place. There's three dimensional character i feel everything that that dad is saying you know when you say he's all over the place he is but he but but that's what a dad would feel you'd feel anger you'd feel protectiveness you'd feel encouraging but then you'd pull back and feel like but i don't want you to get hurt like i think that 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 is the push and pull i i have adult children now my kids are 21 21 and 20 it it is such a push and pull with an adult child because you do you have that feel of like i want to be fully involved i want you to be safe but i want you to be courageous and i want you to explore the world and get out there i'm very actively having that exact push and pull of like i want you to i want you to do some great internship far away but also i want you home (laughs) i think it's actually very accurate and and natural natural within a family to have that push-pull. I said Arthur Scott before when I meant to say John Douglas Thompson, who plays Arthur Scott, by the way. In my getting (laughs) excited about naming people, I want to make sure. I I understand he is, uh, Arthur Scott is a fictional character and not the actor. (laughs) 
Of course. We love Mr. Thompson. So let's move on to the complicated story of Oscar Van Rijn and Maude Beaton. Wow. Wow, Mike. This one, I've had to rewatch this scene a couple of times because I was like, I want to make sure I'm like wrapping my arms around this. And I'm still not 100% sure that I am because last week we had these four scenarios going on, which we won't review. But if you guys go back to our episode, Mike had four different possibilities that it could possibly be going on here. Even after watching this episode, I'm still not sure where which one we're actually in the middle of. No, let's listen to the two clips that that work here and then let's break them down because I don't think this episode really fully answered. It moves it along maybe, but it doesn't answer or resolve in any kind of way any of the four possibilities. They are all still possible depending on how you take these interactions. Let's listen to them. I think you'll find you made a good return in a short time. An astonishing return. I'm pleased if you're pleased. But suppose I don't want to accept the check. How much would I have to invest to be a principal and not a small stakeholder? I don't know, Mr. Van Ryan, a great deal of money. My advice would be to cash that check and enjoy the profits you have made. But if I don't cash it and I come back in two days with a great deal of money... Mr. Van Ryan, may I ask, is... Is Miss Beaton aware of any of this? No. She would only try to dissuade me, but please don't worry about that. I will tell her in good time for us to celebrate together. It is not unheard of, and often it is a very good selling point to hook a mark in a fraud scheme to play hard to get. The investors, uh, you know, initially got you in, but then they really did circle the wagons. And so they're buying you out. And here's a big premium to go away because they want to keep it in-house. That kind of playing hard to get. And if if Crowther has a good feel for Oscar and, and he knows Oscar is going to want to smell blood in the water, very attractive fraud clip. But also as someone who does this work for a living, it is also not unheard of that investor groups that are especially going to be doing takeovers or other high leverage finance want to know the people they're in bed, in bed with and do often want to keep the group small and keep the money with where everyone knows everyone. Money is not just money. Money comes with reputation. And so it's not unreasonable that they wouldn't try and buy out Oscar after Crowther maybe mistakenly accepted the money that the, that the larger investors didn't want him to take. Both are possible. This feels like a fraud scheme. But then again, if it is a fraud scheme, I still don't know if this is a Maud love test or <laughs> if Maud and Oscar are both being duped by Crowther, who maybe is not acting under the guise of Jay Gould, you know, or Maud, Maud is still using Crowther and, and this Castor Bridge, you know, Pacific Railroad. I think that was the name of the company. Uh, and this whole scheme to test Oscar and his fidelity to her versus being a fortune hunter or is Maud even Maud? This is a whole thing that I th was thinking about during the week too. Maud Maud even Maud. I'm not even I wasn't even ready for that question. Maud Beaton <laughs> is a known person, but she's been in Paris, right? We understand from Aurora, but so does anyone really? actually
actually know what she looks like or do they just know there is a woman named Maud Beaton who is an orphan who is also maybe the illegitimate daughter of Jay Gould and she has now come back. See, this goes back to that Anna Delvey business where I was saying she's so much like this inventing Anna character where it's just like no one really knows like who who is she? Where did she come from? I'm with you. And like, what does she look like? People just can say things like, well, she's well dressed or something like that. But like very little actual information. And so I think one of the things we have to talk about is the sincerity of Crowther here, because he is acting as the intermediary for these unseen large investors and Oscar. So let's play the next clip, because this is the clip where he specifically, he, he tries one more time of playing hard to get, let's say it that way, where he specifically appeals to Maud and the fact that she doesn't know which Oscar, we can't ignore fact here, uh, like George confirming he paid the debt and didn't want Bertha to be told, we learned in this episode, we also learned this episode Maud does not know that Oscar is here and that he's trying to make this investment and now even larger investment but does that have ramifications because he promises to use the money to to make he's going to share the money with her he says in the first clip but now he doubles down on it so listen let's listen to this second interaction in the episode you're very persistent Mr. Van Ryn I have the money I might as well tell you that I'm not comfortable about this. I'm, I'm not comfortable at all. Why not? Miss Beaton may appear to be witty and sophisticated, but the truth is she's an innocent. She has always been protected by her father, Mr. Gould. Never mind that. It's enough to say she does not deserve to be used. But I'm not using her. I swear to you that you will enjoy the benefits of this transaction as much as I will. I mean to make her happy, Mr. Crowther. Truly, I do. So be it. So be it. I don't know, Caroline. I don't know. This could be the ultimate Ponzi scheme. Okay, I'll take your money. I'll take your even larger <laughs> check. Like maybe right. they're playing him like a fiddle. Or it maybe maybe Crowther really has a soft spot for Maud Beaton and thinks Oscar is being a little bit of a snake here. And until until he pledges that he's going to share the fortune he's going to make with Maud and make her very happy. Maud, by all of her accounts, if she's being kept in the loop, she's a wonderful actress. Because she is, she seems nothing but extremely happy with how things are going with her and Oscar. Right. She doesn't ever seem skeptical when she's around him, like the question she asked Aurora. So interesting. I think this is a corkboard one. I think this is, a, we got to let it unfold a little bit more. We could make a lot of guesses, but we could be so ghastly wrong. It would embarrass ourselves. So I, I feel like let's corkboard this Oscar situation and say, this is intriguing. This is, this is high finance wildness at its best. And I'm very curious what exactly is going to happen. And if Oscar's going to come out on top, I really hope he does. But I feel like there's an equal chance he could he could absolutely lose a great deal of money. One big question I had was that money that he brought, was that like Agnes Van Ryan money or is that Oscar's money it's to be doing this with? Excellent question. Because that that is where the rub could really be. If he loses it and it means something way more to Agnes, that could be a part of this that we hadn't included in our four scenarios. What if everything's on the up and up? 
but it screws Agnes somehow. Again, a complicated situation without knowing all the facts because Oscar is a banker, so it's not unheard of that he would have access to lines of credit or money of his own, and I'm sure he does well enough. But if he has, he had brought an initial investment check and then says he needs two days to come back with an even larger, and I would think it has to be quite larger in order to get into the upper ranks investor group. Is he dipping into Van Ryan fortune with Agnes being alive? Does Oscar even have access to that money? It would, I would, I would imagine Agnes would be told immediately if any Van Ryan money, any large sum of Van Ryan money was being taken out of an account since she's still alive and active and with it. And, you know, Oscar hasn't taken over the head of the household yet. If he is touching Van Ryan money and not just Oscar money, does Agnes know about it? Or is he doing this behind not only Maud's back, but behind Agnes's back also? This could be potentially earth-shatteringly bad for Oscar, or he can walk out of this mm-hmm. like, you know, si- you know, Kaiser Soze from Usual Suspects, you Completely. know, like, like limping into like a strut as he walks away with <laughs> the riotous pink girl in in, uh, in hand. What did you think what you think of her dress? Oh, I thought beautiful. I loved it. Right? It was so colorful. You know what struck yeah. me is because when we first see her on the street waiting for Oscar, and how funny she's waiting on the street waiting yeah, for Yeah, no, I had big, 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 big questions about that. That seems like wildly inappropriate for this time that she would be waiting on the street for him. I know she said some comment about like, oh, it's nice weather. But I was like, this is exactly what a girl does when she doesn't want her family to know who she's going out with. She meets him on the street. Or doesn't want the guy she's going out with to see what her insides look like. Either way, I like either of those. Both, both though, smell fishy. Either situation smells bad. But then to put her in such a bright, I mean, I literally have riotous pink in my notes, <laughs> which makes her stand out in such stark contrast to everything and everyone around her, even at that's the garden Anna party. That's Anna Delvey, man. I'm telling you, that's what she would do. It's like it blows people away, though. It's like the red jacket in, in like a German expressionist film. It, that pink dress is what that, like, stands out you know where you just see that and nothing else what did you think of the kiss he's being so bold i I, you know i'm not afraid to take a risk (laughs) i think that both of them i said they're like bonnie and clyde they both have this little schemey like kind of a little sassy side to them that i enjoy very much when they're together i i thought oscar looked great in his outfit like what and what a dapper guy these two are the hottest biz honestly my favorite (laughs) storyline in the show right now oscar and maude i I love everything about it's very cool and different than what we're dealing with with everything else they're like everything else time travelers and i'm so here for it everything else is and and most everything else is like family and manners related on the stuff and they're like a lot more like hijinksy feeling like fun and wild and that's exciting in this stories yeah I, so and there, you know, I like the show. The show writers, you know, Lord Fellows and whoever else is in the writers' room, is thinking we haven't made Maud more mysterious enough. Let's just have this one-off where she announces <laughs> she has to leave and pack and says, you know, I hope I, I'd like to think we'll see each other again when I get back. Where the fuck is she going? We didn't hear about this. I watched this so many times. I was like, did they say she was going somewhere? And I just didn't pick it up. Where is she heading off to? That she's leaving this this cringy proposal. This feels like a train wreck that you shouldn't miss where what do you have to go do where do you have to go pack and and to leave i love it let let her be mysterious i think this is like the most fun let's let's have some wildness with her we have to get to the sad news 
I know. I am so sad about this. Okay. The number one question that I'm seeing over and over again is why have Ada go through this? Why have Ada find this love, find this wonderful situation, have them get married and have him get sick so quickly, have this all go downhill so fast. We, we've got to think he's going to pass before the end of the season. He went from having a doctor's appointment to taking to bed in the same afternoon. Feel like this is going to decline so quickly. Why? Why did the writers do this to our our loving ada because this is how god tests us i don't have a good answer ouch i don't fear much in life but i am terrified of cancer it's the thing that keeps me up at night nothing else really i knew it as soon as as soon as he went to the first doctor and they this show was almost cruel in how they kept like dishing it out and then oh like, yeah and I mean, then in the doctor's appointment the, right. yeah how they just stand and stare at one another but he but there's no more words said and then we just cut the scene i was like oh, what the heck is this and then over and over again we cut the scene like okay now now we have marion's come over and now we're gonna tell something to ada but then we cut the scene again we don't tell again what it is he has i thought actually the the blocking of the scene where marion tells agnes and oscar and Peggy is in the room and Aurora's there. If you paused that screenshot for just a second, it looked like a painting. It was so beautifully composed with Agnes sitting on one side, Aurora sitting on another, Peggy standing, Oscar standing. The way that it is all put together, honestly, it was visually stunning. And then the news like took my breath away that when she said cancer, I was like, oh my God, it was really a poignant scene. I think they did a beautiful job with it. How long do you give the rev? Like, an episode. <laughs> but, I mean, before the, I mean, I, he'll he'll be expiring as, as Marguerite's garden flares up in Faust uh, on opening oh, night yeah. of the Met. Oh, you think he'll? Oh, man, I don't even know. But if he made it to the fall, that would actually be pretty good. I think we're only two months away, right? August twenty first to October twenty second. I mean, it's it, it. You're right. I mean, he's already taken to bed, and the way he was mm-hmm. in bed was not just like they were sleeping in, you know, before oh, Sunday no. prayers. It was that's how it always is, right? Like you're fine until you're not. It feels like it always hits that way when he stands up and he says, uh, "I've got a bad back." And Ada says, I'm to blame for that. I really oh, thought we were yes. about to get a sex joke. And then she's oh, like. Oh, I snorted. I snorted when she said that because, because Cynthia Nixon did. A, she did like, well, she did like this delicious pause. She, she goes, did. I'm the cause of that. And then smiles, pauses, then says, Luke carried me over the threshold. But it was a long pause. She like, knew what she was It doing. was double entendre there. But okay. The big moment too in this, of course, is Agnes coming in. I mean, that part, I, the first time I watched it, I think I was in such shock about what was going on that I didn't have the biggest reaction. The second time I watched it, tears for me. I mean, as soon as I saw Ada coming down the stairs and her face start to crumble and then she comes around the corner and she realizes it's Agnes. My family has had like a lot of health issues, especially recently. And just like coming around the corner and seeing your sister and, and having 
having her say like, yeah, I'm here and you don't have to worry is like, that's what all of us need to hear in a situation like that. And just, just seeing Cynthia Nixon, she looks so beautiful and, and alive and bright in the earlier scenes when they, when they're um, having their, their breakfast and they decide to dance. That was so, oh, Mike, you know, I know you you don't think I didn't think of you first and foremost when he stuck his hand out and said, come dance with me. Old Sally cranking the music box. Yes. For our listeners who don't know, I have a super soft spot for men who will, who will slow dance, like especially slow dance in public or slow dance at a place that's like unexpected. Like just take your hand and slow dance. It is a absolute soft spot for me. So it's come up in a bunch of other podcasts that we've done. And, and if the man is willing to dance or if the man is not willing to dance, this says a lot to me. When he did that, I was like, oh my goodness. And that they honeymooned in Niagara Falls, these older couple on their honeymoon with their big smiles at the at the falls. Oh my god, and Pumpkin watching them dance. Guys, go back and watch Pumpkin sitting on the floor staring up at his mom and new dad (laughs) dancing together. Oh my god, while Sally cranks the music box. It is a it is a it is it's so sweet it's so so sweet and she looks so beautiful she does she does it's it's the best she's looked in the entire show i mean so youthful so full so glowing glowing, yeah the color was so beautiful with her hair and everything the color of her dress uh they set us up so much for the fall it hurt to, to to fall down like this i really i actually really appreciated the compassion we felt with church coming across the street and being like hey what's going on over here what's happening and you know and we have that that beautiful resolution between him and banister but just even him having that moment of compassion like everybody in the show like very much stopped and and felt the pain of it right i mean larry comes over there's clearly something amiss and ultimately agnes returns without them right she literally goes to fetch them to bring them home to care for them why do you think he they presumably it's him it's it's rev you know rev apostle who is refusing to convalesce or or take treatment in, at 61st street is it pride is it privacy well probably being both. Wanting, wanting maybe to be closer to god and, and at this time yeah. more than anything i mean i assume there's probably there's other you know church staff that he probably is is close with as well and you know and he has his own people in his house that take care of him that he trusts and would feel good with so I, I mean I've been with people in the hospital and the thing that everybody wants the most is their own bed going to Agnes's house would not be going to his own bed so I very much understand him just wanting to stay in the comfort of his own things his own surroundings and that it's okay for Ada to have a little privacy too the Agnes and Marion and Aurora can come over but they're might be times when she just wants to cry and, and just be able to do that by herself you know there's such foreshadowing when you look back at it when you think back to agnes and the reverend's conversation in his office last week when she talks about how ada has always been there and then her only friend and she was there to bury her husband and she was there for the birth of oscar and and so on and so on and she being she's been there for all of the important milestones in agnes's life and 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 now the tables have turned and immediately you know happiness has turned to ash in their mouth and now agnes is leaving her house and going to the rectory to be by her sister i i mean i don't know if one single act redeemed a character, but this has to go a long way in redeeming Agnes as a character 
for stepping up and going to her sister when it when it matters. Now, some people may say that's the base thing. That's what she's supposed to do. But it's not who she is by nature as far as we've seen. So I think we have to give some credit for the character doing what's right when so often you would predict she wouldn't. I felt really good about how she handled it. And just to see the relief on Ada's face. Just to be there for her sister, yeah. Yeah, I I know it's what Ada needed. Like, you know, you never really know in those situations. Sometimes, again, people prefer to be by themselves. But when she saw Agnes, that was clear relief on her face. This was the right move by Agnes to be there. And and I appreciate that she probably did try to strong arm them into, you know, coming over and and just being in her house because it's easier for Agnes. (laughs) But I I understand why they choose to stay in their own home. Maybe. I think I think she just assumes that she'll be able to provide better care than whatever he's going to get based out of the rectory. Yeah, I agree. It's all it's all in a loving way. Right, it's when nothing he says negative. That he has a bad back. She says, sit down. I'm going to get Dr. Lewis. You know, I think Dr. Lewis, whoever their doctor is to come look at him like like immediately. She's like, just sit down. You know, have John fetch the doctor, man. I why? Why? Why do bad things happen? Why? This is you've I mean, they, they're literally using Ada and the reverend and their newfound love to ask one of the most existential questions of people who believe in a higher power it's the number one question people that believe in a god of some type ask why do bad bad things happen and why do bad things happen to good people it's very sad. I th- I mean, it is, though, important to remember that this is a time when we didn't have treatment for things like cancer. We didn't have a way to do anything. I mean, we discussed in another episode how just falling off your wagon was a good way to die during this time. So it's sort of everyone being so helpless and where we are with our medical, you know, um, technology and everything at this time. There's just nothing to be done. And and I think that it it does make sense to include a storyline where you have like people just have to put their hands up and be like, well, you know, we've got some liniment, <laughs> you know, we've got we've got some salves and whatnot. But I mean, nothing that would actually touch this. I was actually surprised. I, I don't know the history of cancer. I don't know when we started using that word. So for me, I was like kind of surprised that that we were using that word back then. We already we call it the same thing now like that. I don't know. For some reason that struck me as like, wow, so many things have changed and yet so many things have stayed the same. Yeah, I don't I didn't actually that was one thing I didn't actually look into. Um, but I am curious when the word came. It, it was interesting because they just described it as the kind that starts in your back, which I, I'm I off the top of my head. I'm not familiar with a cancer that is known to start in your back. I, I imagine there's some kind of lymph node or or mass or something. Yeah, or like maybe like even in your um, like pancreas or mm. or something like that like you'd feel it through your back, you know, as opposed maybe. to through your front, but or like a kidneys stuff like that. I'm sure I'm um, extremely ignorant. I don't, if anyone has no, an idea I, of what the kind of cancer <laughs> is that would start in your back that you'd feel it there, please let us know. Yeah, uh, let us know. know. We don't know. We're not. We are not. I, I regularly can't get up after long days, so. <laughs> but I think that's just my age and poor care for my body. Let's lighten, <laughs> nice. it up a li- let's lighten it up a little bit because there was a funny moment when when they first come to uh, 61st Street after their honeymoon. And uh, let's listen to <laughs> Agnes talk about some hobbity hoys. I suppose Marion is teaching or else she'd be here with us. This teaching nonsense has taken over her life. It's not nonsense, Agnes. She has promised some do-gooder that she would teach some class of beggars to read and write on the evening of Cousin Dashiell's party. For which she deserves our praise. Oh, she cannot miss Dashiell's party for them. What does she think? That their social diaries will prevent them from changing the date? She takes a commitment to the poor seriously. 
Jesus teaches. Even Jesus would understand that she cannot turn down a potential suitor for a bunch of hobbledehoys. I'm not sure he would. For a bunch of hobbledehoys. For a bunch of hobbledehoys. For a bunch of hobbledehoys. What are you doing? <laughs> For a bunch of hobbledehoys. She gets so angry when she says a word that I had never heard before that I moment. I had never heard it either. That was so funny. I was like, it what means, the hobbledehoys? Uh, Miriam's uh, dictionary, Merriam-Webster dictionary, defines it as awkward, gawky youth. Well, sure. That, that works. Well, Riz is going in the dictionary this year, and you don't know what that means either, so. <laughs> like Rizzo from Greece? Yeah, that's what it is. You teasing me, Riz? <laughs> Phrases, phrases that I hear actually more regularly than you probably imagine. Riz is like your like your game. Like, how's my Riz? Oh, good God. Is this like dead ass and cap and no cap? It is. It's actually going in the dictionary, though. So I'm just saying you can find words in the dictionary. I will literally rip those pages of the dictionary <laughs> out. I would buy a hard copy and remove I just saw. I just saw like Riz was, the, was going in the dictionary this year. <laughs> Hold on. Agnes has something to say about that. No. Yeah, I agree with her. <laughs> no. For a bunch of hobbledehoys. It's gonna be. I'm gonna make some kind of like Blue Danube mixtape with hobbly hoys and uh, no. And her just yelling no in the background. Just, no, <laughs> no. Oh, I just had this image of pumpkin and made me think of Elvira and them dancing. I, I was I was oh, tremendously man. sad during all this. Oh man. I do have to point out because we did in the last episode about uh, whenever the Rev holds pumpkin, it's still hilarious. And oh, it was, was still hilarious it, it this time, like too. Was, my son has started to wrestle uh, this season in high school, <laughs> and it looked like he was trying to put some kind of half Nelson on pumpkin yes. when he was carrying him into it. Like, yes. like he was trying to subdue the dog. When I he was, was like, why is he it squeezing its neck so hard? <laughs> yeah, he wasn't like carrying it like a baby or anything. He was just no. like, he was, like, like, it was trying to pickpocket him, and he was trying to wrestle it to the ground. That's He's always trying like. to subdue the dog. I don't know what's going on, but it's it's funny every time. Hey, can we talk about the downstairs intrigue? Of course. Are you ready? We have the Russell downstairs intrigue and we have Van Ryan downstairs this episode. Let's stick with the Van Ryan's house. So our Jack storyline was definitely like taking the forefront for sure. And uh, we still got more of this alarm clock, patent talk. I thought it was really, really heartwarming to see everybody chip in, give him money. I was like, Mrs. Bauer, of course, kicks it off because she's got the biggest heart of all of them and starts pitching in money. I thought it was amazing and how it continued once he like came upstairs and Peggy like was explaining to Agnes what was going on and Agnes pitches in five bucks and Marion pitches in three bucks. I was like, I was just over the moon for Jack to have all these people be encouraging him and supporting him. The whole way that this, that this spins out where then like he's not a part of the clockmaker society, so he can't actually apply for the patent. My heart was breaking for him. He had the biggest lip, like yeah, sit, standing very, outside. Very pouty quiver lip. Oh my goodness. But, but I was like, kid, you can do this. But it was, it was really killing me. Like when Bannister was explaining like, oh, he doesn't have the qualifications to get into the society. I was like, what are you supposed to do? And like, also, is the patent office allowed to do such crap and say like, if you don't belong to a certain society, we won't even look at your idea. Like, I was feeling like that was very unfair. I don't know what the current laws are. It feels like something back in the 1800s that the patent office maybe did have a rule like that. I don't know. I don't know what the current patent laws say, if that's actually true now or not, but it definitely feels like something in a very gatekeeping 
world that the 1800s were in in so in so many ways that they would have mandated you be because they want they don't want to waste their time if you if you don't even have a basic credential it, it, the the free entrepreneurial spirit that we encourage now uh you know through as seen on tv i i don't think was as alive or vibrant in the 1800s so but you know i like the idea that bauer and and already has banister or you know have his thinking face on for ways to get around it so this feels definitely like it's its first crest of the wave but i don't think we're done with the storyline yet because banister especially coming off of his karmic redemption bad karma moment with church feels extra committed to trying to make this work for jack plus they all have money invested now i mean agnes says i like the idea of supporting an inventor well you if you're going to support him then you have to support him right i've i felt really happy that everyone was just being so encouraging i mean for lack of a better word it's just just so encouraging of him and so like excited for him genuine excitement like someone could move up and out of this world that's amazing so it's one dollar from bridget two from mrs bauer four from mr bannister and peggy so that is 11 an extra five from agnes 16 and then three dollars from marion funny marion actually gives less than peggy but peggy actually has two incomes so she actually probably makes a decent amount more money than than marion does who who knows what she gets paid for teaching those classes if anything at all it may yeah, just I be kind of thought maybe work. the the watercolor is probably probably volunteer so that but three dollars yeah. is probably coming right out of whatever her agnes allowance is so um yeah so he's got 19 right he needed 15 to file and then it's another 20 if it gets us accepted eventually with no with no obvious way to get the money back if it's rejected um the patent office the the pto actually is not taxpayer supported so the entire office runs, or at least today, the entire office runs basically on the fees collected from submissions. That's why it's thirty-five bucks for for getting a, an accepted patent in eighteen eighty-three. Which and way I mean, back then, that's so much. When he when they said fifteen dollars, I wonder if a lot of people are like, well, whatever. And then the way his like eyes rolled back, it was like someone shot him in the chest. He's like, whoa! <laughs> He's like, I'm gonna have to start saving. But no, he didn't though, because you have Mrs. Bauer just kicking it off, like you said, going, make us proud. Peggy upstairs, you know, says they believe in you and so do I. And come on. And then Bridget at the end telling him, please promise that you're going to continue with it. And he gives like a, I guess so. I, you know, like I will, I guess. I don't know. Come on, Jack, you're going to quit now. This is this is your ticket to the upstairs. This is what you were talking about all season one. I think he was just so disappointed. I think he thought he he had gotten all the information he needed to get because it was surprising that Bannister had so much information about a patent and how to do it. And I was like, oh, okay. I mean, he said, I have a friend. Okay. It's like having a a hot girlfriend in Canada that no one ever gets to see. You have a friend who knows patent law, Bannister? What? That was pretty funny. But but it it worked out, of course. And and just for our listeners, $15 in 1883 is like $450 now. So Mm. that's a lot of money to have to come up with um you know as a young guy like that that's a lot of money so i i completely understand and i understand how how depressing it would be because the reason was so difficult to get around like if he has to have like certifications or qualifications in order to get into the society and he's not even in it and also i i was like what a crazy i did not see that coming twist 
like, ugh, I I don't know how he's going to get around this. So we'll see. I am am invested in the alarm clock story. I am too. I know I was ripping on it before. I'm actually invested in it also, but I do understand why Only because of Jack, though. I want to be clear. Only because of Jack. I think that he, as a character, is selling the what this idea of having a small kernel of an idea and being able to to try to use this to to make your fortune i see what we're doing here and and i get this little tiny microcosm for like a george russell right so he's like this little nugget we don't know how george russell made his fortune i think the prevailing wisdom is or the the prevailing thought is and it's certainly my own headcanon is that he made himself he started from low and and climbed up and made himself into who he is today and if that is true jack becomes even more important because we see where george is now it's hard to imagine him not having anything well jack jack is someone who has nothing and and potentially makes something of himself and climbs it and and doesn't have nepo baby money you know trust fund sitting for him to help start off his billion dollar real estate business or whatever um you know he's literally coming from where he doesn't have 15 bucks to his name to maybe potentially becoming someone of note and or someone of wealth or someone someone who can have a footman of his own down the road which which is significant and this is the time when the american dream really was taking hold and and was exploding all over the place we talked about this last season with with uh, edison uh lighting up the first building downtown this idea of american dream and hope and 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 being who you are which was the t thomas fortune and peggy stuff from last week and a little bit this week this is this is that time in america the the you could you could be a footman and have an idea for an alarm clock and as long as you can get around the horological society or institute requirement maybe you can become someone i don't know I, I'm, I'm investing in it for that point though i was ripping on it earlier because comparatively people may complain why so much alarm clock stuff versus piggy stuff but i i agree with you i think jack is a compelling figure as a as a young man with nothing in america at this time why is armstrong so nasty and vile true or false she almost feels like a cartoon villain at this point. <laughs> yes, when she was just continuously piping up when he had to come and tell the bad news that he didn't actually get it. And she was like, burp, 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 like every little thing, she had something to say. And she was like across the room from everybody else. And she just had to add her two cents. I was like, Armstrong, for real? Like, why you got to go out of your way to be nasty? They they gave us a little nugget of her having a difficult relationship with her mother and maybe being a shit roll yes. downhill kicking dog for her yes. mother in season one. But it was one very small snippet that we've never returned to. And even still, it doesn't justify or warrant her behavior to everyone. <laughs> Agreed. I mean, she's certainly making the world a much worse place for everyone else. And, and you know, as a caretaker, I have huge compassion for her. That And they did show a very upsetting scene. Remember, her mom throws the food and everything. It was bad what she has to very deal with. And, so. and, and if we're going to give any outs for Agnes having been in a terrible marriage for any of her behavior, then we got to give Armstrong a little bit for, for the difficult life she's leading. At the same time, she could be using these people as like her soft spot to fall. She could be using these people as a place where she can have good conversation and friends and and warmth and comfort. So it's unfortunate that she's choosing to lash out at everyone instead of 
confiding in, say, Mrs. Bauer or Bridget or something and talking it out and and saying how, you know, how difficult things are, especially I could see Mrs. Bauer and her like if she would actually just ease up, you know, like Mrs. Bauer would be a wonderful person for her to talk to and and she would be so kind to her. Without reservation would be so kind to her without reservation. She is she's always trying to to needle Armstrong into doing the right thing or saying the right thing. Everyone deserves (laughs) encouragement. Everyone deserves And I think Mrs. Bauer would for sure include Armstrong. You have to imagine at least Bannister, Armstrong, and uh, Mrs. Bauer have worked together for years. Yeah, probably the majority of their career. Even if it's not friendship, just that length of time makes a bond that would be a person for her to confide in. But she she's the Grinch she's if angry. the Grinch if the Grinch's heart never ever ever grows. It's just yeah. perpetually kicking Max and uh, the dog and just being nasty about it. And hey, we all have that little slice inside of us, as Bannister shows us in this episode, that uh, we have that we all have a little vileness inside of us that that wants to get someone else uh, feeling bad. Could you believe he actually wrote this? letter about church over to george so petty banister i couldn't believe he actually did it this this is this is you know i like this kind of detail you know this 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 random thing from season one well it wasn't random it was it was significant at the time but really hasn't been significant in uh, an entire I mean, we've season dropped, at this point uh, we've dropped whole storylines <laughs> that, that, that that so for this to stick around it is funny because it is a small little storyline because they've always revisited it every time the two men the two head butlers see each other on the street there was always some kind of suspicious nod from banister and church pooping himself a little bit and it continued i think it's in the very first scene or it's in the very first episode of this season they still are doing it and it's how season one ended and and so you have it today where he sees him walking drunk and church drunk very uh weekend at bernie's-esque uh, walking yes. the way he was yes. kind of like very archway <laughs> and then but then collapsing into the boxes and stuff. At first, I had no idea what I was looking at. I like thought he was I was sick like, or something. I didn't me get drunk. Too. I, thought, like, I was like, is he out of it? Like what happened? But I wasn't. I wasn't like going to drunk outbreak? at all. I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, drunk did not come into it. Like zombie outbreak uh-uh. was. You were. You know, he was. Being I don't know what I was looking at. It was so strange. Uh, but you know, a horrible fact that we, we learn via Adelheid telling uh, Jack that. It's the 30th anniversary of his wife's wife's death from smallpox. She was only 24 years old at the time. I mean, God, Church got married young. I guess maybe not young for 1883, but for him to have already been married and then for his wife to succumb to smallpox at 24, and that it's 30 years on that yeah. he's still celebrating it, and it has this effect. I mean, I... I that's super tragic. Oh, it's very sad. But but it was a really good, um, I thought, like bookend to George's compassion and mercy shown by not having the, the guy shoot. I thought it was like kind of the same little microcosm again, like bringing it down to the downstairs. We have this smaller thing where it's like we have Church standing in front of the firing squad with that letter and Bannister going and showing mercy and taking it back and saying, no, I'm not willing to actually get you shot and taking it back. Like that was a really cool bookend to George. Georgia story. Bannister concocts a story that he needs the letter back because he was scolding George to get his wife under control for how she has conducted herself during the <laughs> opera wars. That Good was God, such Bannister. A funny reason. Oh my God. Church, is, if Church was like, what in the world? Like, why would you think you could write that? That made me laugh so hard. I was like, way to like say something that was like obviously so out of line. Like, get your woman under control. 
kind of thing. What? But you know that's exactly how Bannister and Agnes probably feel, though. That was what made it so funny to me. He concocts this story, and I think I think we agree. Maybe maybe we don't tell him if we don't, but he concocts the story in order to it has to be something so outrageous as to warrant giving back the letter that he can rip up, but also protect church's privacy and dignity as to not get into what he saw and 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 that moment of vulnerability that I'm sure church would rather no one have witnessed and as far For as sure. he knows Bannister did not with at the same time I laughed because I thought to myself I make you bet him and Agnes probably around you know port when, watch while he watches her drink it at the end of a dinner that she eats alone now they probably talk about how they think George doesn't keep Bertha under control nearly enough that was what made it funny to me is this this is probably <laughs> this is probably how he really feels he just wouldn't be so silly as to put it into a letter it was awesome. I, I thought it was great. And I'm really glad to see them actually shake hands at the end and have this whole thing be put behind us. It felt it felt good. It felt like, thank goodness. And I would really like to see more of the staff interaction across the street. I think it's cool. And, you know, maybe we'll see if Adelheid ends up getting getting moved over to the Van Ryan house or if something else happens. Although we have this French Looks like French lady's maid who's going to be hired and bringing her on. Well, let's start with Adelheid because she she talks she talks to Jack. I thought it was interesting. She starts it off by saying, "I thought you had gone off of me." Interesting phrase, kind of an old timey phrase. But Jack says, "No, oh, I've just been working on this alarm clock." And you know, she's kind of you know she's she inquires about that a little bit. But they're really setting these two up as being a relationship where, at the same time, I feel like they've really moved Bridget into a friend zone kind of place where it feels very not romantic when Bridget talks to Jack now, but much more from like a, just a straight friend's place encouraging him. And and maybe, maybe she's just biding her time or maybe she, maybe she has moved on or whatever, but they, they seem to be moving that these two are the ones that they like to go forward because she talks about how say what you want going back to working for just Gladys is a demotion. And so she thinks her days are numbered at the Russell household. Jack implores her that if she does quit or get fired that she would tell him before she leaves and i thought that was very sweet i i'm i'm again curious i mean this is some young romance right we spend so much time talking about high society romance we have a very you know in titanic terms steerage level like romance story budding here and i'm, mm-hmm. I'm kind of curious especially if, in the wake of if jack makes it what does that mean for him and adelheid what does that mean for him and bridget what does that mean for him and you know all of a sudden his romantic life will become extremely important if he finds himself nouveau rich in uh in the late 1800s. Hey, how many seasons did Downton Abbey go? Jesus, six, I think five or six. And then they had two movies. What do you, so I, I'm like, let's cross our fingers that we get all that. Well, let's cross our fingers though, that we get, we get at least as long with our characters in Gilded Age, because I, I, I feel like we could really follow Jack's rise into society. And wouldn't it be interesting to watch, you know, it would have to be like years from now, but it would be years from now when if like Adelheid like could end up like working for his household or something like that, like something really messy like that, like an old love becomes like part of his staff. I mean, that's, uh, you're, you're looking at him as like equals, but I, that's not how it could be he probably would have to marry someone in current society so like wouldn't it be crazy if like she ends up working for him it would be nuts 
I think that they're doing a great job with these young characters that we could grow with them for a long time. Well, let's go from young to one of the oldest, Mrs. Astor. She comes to Agnes again. Everyone, everyone going to someone else's house. Uh, you know, we have Agnes going to see her sister, and we have Mrs. Astor bringing Ward along to to Agnes. But basically, she tells she tells Ward to go by the Duke at whatever cost necessary, and this all offends Agnes. I was I was surprised. Were you surprised that Agnes reacted so strongly against uh, Mrs. Astor and what she's trying to do here and voiced that and voiced that displeasure? Well, I think it's smart for Agnes to stay above the fray on some of this stuff because, I mean, this is getting really dirty and nasty. I mean, the idea of trying to buy a Duke, I don't really know how Mrs. Astor thinks this is going to work out. I mean, are you under the impression that Bertha is paying the Duke to come be there? No, but Mrs. Astor maybe presumes that. But how do you present money to somebody like that? <laughs> well, she just seems not to be thinking about the fact that she's trying to match her daughter, which Mrs. Astor having a daughter the same age, basically, as Gladys, you think she would also be thinking along the line. Yeah, no. So I I don't know. I don't even think she's thinking about that stuff at all. I don't think she's looking at the Duke as anything. I, but, but what is confusing to me is how are you going to the Duke of just a person who is invited somewhere and going to offer them a bunch of money. How is this not distasteful? Like, I don't know how you do that in a cool way. Maybe she's thinking, maybe she's talking more metaphorical payment. That's okay. whatever, whatever the status <laughs> worth of the Duke, because it's the Duke is coming to opening night. And then she says, I'm going to write to join him in the box. And then I'm going to write to Ward to, you know, have him come along too. You know, you're talking what, about Bertha when you're, Bertha, when you're talking right, about right, right, Bertha saying that kind of thing. So maybe it's more like metaphorical to that because again, Ward knows the more details than he has led on to Mrs. Astor because he has been playing both sides that she doesn't realize. Well, as far as we know, she doesn't realize. I think she has her suspicions. The way that she smirks at him every once in a while, I feel like he, she knows. It's like how she does with Mrs. Fish. Like she's like, I know you just like to stir the pot. <laughs> the interesting thing here, and the thing, the, the thing that's really up on my bulletin board is Ward says, even if I do and that works, it may not be enough. You need a twofold attack to beat Bertha. So you, Mrs. Astor, need to think of something. What is that? What is the thing that Mrs. Astor is going to flank Bertha with in addition to Ward trying to lure the Duke out of her box on opening night? See, that's where I would think money would come in. Like if you could, you could double or triple the pay of the performers to come to your opera instead. Like that's realistic. I don't see how you pay a guest off. I really do not know how you do this. I, I'm looking more besmirching Bertha. Maybe, maybe she knows more about Enid Winterton's past than just what she let on to Mr. Winterton. So you think blackmail on this? Or expose or just straight exposing her and, and, and okay. ruining her reputation of the star guest of Bertha Russell, Enid Winterton, who brought so many people to the Met, you know, once tried to seduce her husband while a lady's maid in her employ. It takes them all down. I mean, if she has some information, we still don't know where she got that information from. I don't think we've ever actually been told who snitched to Mrs. Astor about 
Turner's past. So who knows how much information she has beyond that she was a lady's maid in the Russell household. Right. This one's a, this one's a curiosity. I mean, I, I appreciate the fact that, that Mrs. Astor and Ward and Agnes got together as, as a little, you know, uh, club. Like they are like, we have to break this up. What are we going to do? How are we going to attack? That part was all exciting and fun. I thought I agree with you that the, the, if we don't do a two prong attack, getting, trying to dissuade the Duke from coming for some reason, don't go to Bertha. I don't know how you do that. I don't know what you're going to bribe him with, but something I can see that and then on the flip doing something to embarrass bertha at her big day that seems very plausible because i mean obviously we already know there's going to be friction with enid anyway like it doesn't it wouldn't matter if mrs astra did nothing there's a fair shot that there's like a slap fight <laughs> you know going on between enid and bertha that right. night well, anyway because of the whole box situation going yeah. back to george's interference so there, there's a right. lot of forces coming down on bertha for opening night the odd thing is she doesn't know about any of them for someone who is so on top of things and really is a mastermind of her world she actually really doesn't know any of the forces gathering against her at this point. She, as far as she knows, when this episode ends, she has reluctantly sacrificed her center box in order to get the membership brought over to the Met that Mrs. Winterton provides. That's all she knows, and that the Duke is coming. So even if she has to take a substandard box, she still gets the Duke in her box. That's all she knows. She doesn't know what George is, is, is conniving in the background. She doesn't know that Mrs. Astor and Ward now may be actively working against her in in some unseen way or some unknown way we don't know how Enid Winterton is going to react the day of in fact if she is barred from her box there may be a lot coming at Bertha on the night of the 22nd of October that she has no time to prepare for and we're going to see a real test of how quick she is on her feet agreed I think the very last thing is we did get a little light comedy montage in the Russell household, speaking of Bertha and George, down in their downstairs, Church and Mrs. Bruce were interviewing new ladies' maids. And I like this just because this was a tense episode with the strike and then a very sad episode with with the cancer and Ada and the Reverend. So I was happy for this little light comedy montage. What's your take here? What's your take of the French lady having a very reasonable proposal for the trial period hire? Oh, I thought she seemed like a dream employee compared to the other two. My goodness, they were they were a mess. So, yeah, I think that they're smart to try her and, and her being French. I think it'll be a big selling point with Bertha. So I think that that's a positive thing. She's a little bit older, too. So it's it's going to be less seductive, maybe. than Oh, God, yes, that I guess. You know, well, you, know, you have to think from Bertha's standpoint, the trauma of a Turner. Yeah. She's not going to be, you know, so eager to having, you know, someone young and hot maybe you know so close to her husband's bedchamber at night i think that that's fair that she she will she will not want that for sure this is a, an interesting ad I'll, do you think we're going to see her next episode like in action I, I would imagine so i mean she's going to do her 30-day trial period I, I think her being french uh is interesting for the chemistry downstairs where you have a not French chef who pretended to be French for a long time, especially given the possible romance between him and Mrs. Bruce, which hasn't been revisited since he asked her out in the drawing room to go to their concert, which at this point must have taken place already if we're in August now. Like the Van Ryan house, the Russell house has a pretty, pretty good chemistry once they got rid of Turner. Things kind of work pretty smoothly there, other than Adelheid maybe being fired. It's a funny montage with all the bad interviewees, but 
she is intriguing. She's a very little French Mary Poppins vibe to her, uh, you know, so kind of just coming in and being able to spoonful of sugar the whole situation down. Very curious. It's I always love when they bring someone in new to see if it like, is she going to just smoothly transition in or will she be like instant problem child? <laughs> So looking forward to seeing what's going to happen with her and all of our characters next week. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Thank you for listening to New Money, Old Rules, the Gilded Age podcast. If you wouldn't mind heading over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify Spotify Podcasts, or wherever you listen and leave us a five-star rating and a comment. We would love to read it on the air. Like this one from Lammy Pie 23 Best Gilded Age HBO show fan cast. Mike and Caroline are amazing. I love, love, love listening to every podcast after every after each episode. It's so fun and informative i also like this this wasn't actually on spotify or apple spotify by the way you can actually leave comments now after in on episode threads a little bit like apple Podcasts, so you can do that there plus leave five stars as well as over on apple Podcasts. molu 93 i was having a conversation with them over on reddit and they had this to say about the podcast you guys are the best and the length is very much a good thing i am always looking forward to your new eps i had been apologizing that our episodes have been so long this season but my defense was that we had 18 months with no episodes to talk about so we've been making up with it for very long episodes all season long uh yeah guys write to us we'd love to hear from you please join the facebook group and interact with us there we've been getting great back and forths on characters and we agree with you here we disagree with you there let's get into it let's uh, let's rumble it up let's learn about some history that i will be loading up I, i've pretty much decided i'm going to wait for the season to end so that i have new things to add going on once the season ends to the facebook group so i think you're going to see more history stuff coming out after even the season is over that's awesome thank you guys so much for listening thank you for listening this has been an original pod clubhouse production Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.